Hello everybody and welcome to Lighting the Pipes and thank you very much for joining us here on this episode dedicated to Raymond Chandler's Raymond Chandler's The Little Sister <laughs> The Little Sister Yeah, sorry, sorry uh, My name is Scott Powell and I'm delighted to be here with you even though it might seem like I don't know what I'm doing uh, I'm here with my buddy, buddy. delighted to be here regardless I'm delighted to now be here Now you know how I feel Now you know uh, how I feel Awesome With my buddy and co-host uh, Josh Taylor across in Ottawa How you That's doing, me. buddy? How you doing? Good Happy holidays to all Happy holidays to all Yes, did you have a nice Christmas? I did. It was, uh, in spite was, of, in spite was, of the situation, in spite of everything, it was quiet with, you know, with my parents and my sister and my aunt came over for Christmas dinner and it was nice to see her. And mm -hmm. so it was, yeah, it was a pleasant time. And, uh, I was happy with the gifts that I got very practical stuff for someone who's been living in, you know, an, an apartment for the past year or so alone. So, mm -hmm. uh, practical stuff. Yeah. Bachelor pad life. Bachelor pad life, indeed. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I hope everyone out there is, uh, you know, healthy and safe uh, the best they can, and uh, they're enjoying the holiday season in any way they can. Well, it has been a strange holiday season for you and for all of us, hasn't it? It's uh, it's it's not a real get together celebratory time. It's really just an opportunity, I suppose, to uh, to sit close to the ones you love and sort of curl up with a good book and uh, spend your time inside. A good book like Raymond Chandler's The Little Sister, for example. Mm, well, we'll see whether this passes a test or not and how well it does in our own pipes. This is the fifth Raymond Chandler novel that we've reviewed. And last time we met here on the show, Josh, we talked about The Lady in the Lake, which was a book that kind of split our opinion, didn't it? Mm -hmm. Yes, it did. I'm curious to see how The Little Sister is going to go in that direction or not. So let's get those thoughts out there and see if they match or contrast or... I guess that's the excitement of the whole literary review sort of thing. Ah, it is. It is for sure. And this is an interesting text for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, it is the longest absence between books we've had, at least between yes. uh, Marlowe books that we've had. This is six years. Am I right in saying that? Six years? Yeah, it's like mm -hmm. 43 to 49. 49, is yeah. 49 essentially. Yeah, because 43 after he published The Lady in the Lake, as I will get into... Uh, he was not really writing for uh, for for his own. I mean, he did do some writing in between that time period, but it wasn't on Philip Marlowe. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until till 1949 when this book was published was when he got back into the character of Philip Marlowe and back into uh, fiction writing in general. Yeah, I mean, what what you're tiptoeing around is the really good prepared feature that you've got for us very shortly about Chandler's time in Hollywood because he was called. Uh, summoned? Is that the right word? No, it's not right. Not the right word. It's not like the district attorney Endicott has summoned him. It's something a little different, isn't it? But it's, what, kind, of, it's kind of like that. I mean, I would lured? say... Was he lured? I wouldn't say lured. I would say offered. snatched. Snatched? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, he goes off to Hollywood and he becomes a screenwriter. <laughs> <laughs> well, at, by the end of it, he probably felt that way. Um, well, just like a Marlowe tale, there's always a part where, where Raymond is passed out somewhere and then he gets involved in uh, some chicanery. So there you go. Hmm. Well, if you haven't read it before, The Little Sister is, it's not exclusively a work that reflects in mirror image Chandler's feelings of Hollywood, but we certainly do get, um, we do get a, taste a, of it. a taste of it. Yeah. And that taste leaves us with fairly clear impressions of how the writer and his central character feel about um, about that sort of glittery lifestyle and production. Yeah, I'll extrapolate on that uh, mm -hmm. later on, of course. Yeah, yeah. 
it's kind of funny, actually, Josh, you know, as we as we sit here today to record this episode, it's um, just a couple of days after Christmas, the 27th of December. And, you know, as often happens um, when you're taking down Christmas decorations and you're setting up the house and you're, you know, you're you're moving things around, you've got boxes all over the place. I've completely kind of redone my little recording space here in the house. And we, we've got a nice house, but it's not it's not huge. You know, we don't have a lot of office space. We don't have like a study in which I can sort of, uh, you know, beaver away and and just sort of do my thing, you know? So it's it's more of a makeshift studio today. And it's funny, as I was setting it up here in the in the spare room, just getting the, the table set up and the uh, the mic stand and all the rest of it, I realized what, I, what, what I've created for myself is not dissimilar to how I imagined Sherlock Holmes in, in The Adventure of the Twisted Lip. Uh, the man with the twisted lip when he when he's in the opium den uh, well no not in the opium den but when he's sitting up at in um in lee i believe it's lee isn't it he goes to and he sits up all night on the cushions you know and yes. he smokes yes. and watson wakes up in the morning and the whole room is enveloped in smoke and there sits holmes kind of like a like this philosopher king you know who's who's finally <laughs> got it right and he, and he goes and he gets the sponge uh, so that, that 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 idea of him sitting on all the cushions it's kind of what i would have like here i'm sorry surrounded by cushions and uh, makeshift setting. That's kind of in my situation as well. My sister got me this like pillow thing that uh, it kind of wraps around your body with like nice little cushions. And, and I have that on my on the end of my bed that I have that like large square mm-hmm. pillow that you can use also for sitting on the floor with. And I have all my podcast equipment there. And I'm quite comfortable. We have my coffee and yeah, that's the, good. The, the, the pillow set up and the mic and the laptop and everything seems to be working well so far. Well, look, thanks thanks again, everyone, for joining us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Lighting yes. the Pipes. Um, we're really hoping to be a little more consistent in the new year with uh, how we get these episodes out. Because I think right now we're, we're going a little bit slower than we would like to. We're, you know, it's taken us six, seven weeks to get an episode out. but And that's um, that's down to just busyness of kind of life and, and work and family. Other and podcasts. Whatnot. And our other show, of course, yeah, our forays into the James Bond universe. But... We are looking in the new year to uh, to get more of these lit reviews out um, in in timely fashion, and we got a couple of really couple of special special plans for the new year that uh, we're going to keep we're going to keep under wrap. I'll look forward to the big reveal. And I was wondering, Scott, <laughs> the big yeah. reveal. Yeah, go well, ahead, buddy. It, it would it be Chandler without a big reveal, right? Mm. Um, despite you know his distaste for the <laughs> those tropes, <laughs> but his audience wants them, right? Or so he believed. And mm-hmm. anyways. Now, we know that, like, for example, Playback, that was a movie script, mm-hmm. one that I'm not going to really be talking about in this capacity, uh, and it's Hollywood. I will, there's going to be part two of the Hollywood's, um, top, um, the Hollywood part of his life that I'm going to continue on with um, in the next episode as well, because mm-hmm. it kind of carries through. So sure. we'll get into that later on. But really, our, the next big book after The Little Sister is going to be fair. It's going to be, it's going to, it's going to be The Long Goodbye, mm-hmm. um, which is probably also one of his most well-known novels as well. I think you're um, right. Yeah, it's his longest yeah. and probably probably his most well-known. Yeah, His most well-known. And also you have, you know, the well, it's also a very prestigious, like, Robert Altman adaptation from the 1970s uh, yeah. that came out of that. We are kind of now beginning discussions and considerations of who our next big author is going to be. But like we did this season, we're still going to dip in and out with a couple of different book reviews and perhaps film reviews from things that connect to the world of crime, the world of homes, the world of um, just kind of good fiction in general. Uh, we're, we're looking in season three 
too, aren't we, Josh, to sort of, or we're looking with season three, we're wanting to broadening, broaden out a little more of, of what the show's about, which started as a very focused look at the Holmes canon. Now we're doing Chandler stuff. And after this, you know, we want to find a new author on which to anchor our conversations and our sort of season focus, but we're still going to do some different things, right? Yes. And, and you know what? Who says, you know, you can't uh, light the pipes to non-mystery novels as well, of course, right? Of course you can. So, yeah. so we can, you know, we can light our pipes to, you know, various different types of genres or or series of books or, you know, that we might want to, you know, that we that we personally love and we want to share with you. And Well, yeah, so, light, lighting the pipes is always going to be rooted in our exploration of Sherlock Holmes and that, that sort of first big project that opened up. The, the acronym and opened up the, the review world to us. But from that, we're evolving and we're growing and we're going to do new things. And uh, yeah, so we're looking forward to staying with the world of crime and crime fiction, but not necessarily pigeonholing ourselves into that genre alone. We're, we're happy to, uh, to explore and looking forward to exploring some other texts. And you know, Josh, yeah. I, th- I think I think that perhaps part of what we can do in our third season, after we're finished the Chandler work, as we broaden out generically um, what we are looking to investigate, we can also bring in a couple of select episodes, some film, TV reviews on you know from the likes of the the Brett Granada work or maybe the Johnny Lee Miller Elementary Show. You know, mm-hmm. different different things, not necessarily long episodes like our book reviews will be, but something a little. Just a different, like, uh, kind of amuse-bouche, uh, amuse-bouche. <laughs> things yeah. between the servings, yeah. That sounds good. Yeah, that should mm-hmm. be fun for sure. Palette cleansers. And we can also interject more of our uh, Holmes Media stuff, too. We can always get our friend Jeff along, and, you know, we can check out, for example, uh, I mean, if we have to, uh, the Will Ferrell and uh, Holmes <laughs> mm-hmm. and Watson movie, if you want to. Or, See, I or, think that or, would be fun. I think that could be a fun episode to do, yeah. Yeah, it would be like shooting fish in a barrel, critically, <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. Um, and of course, Guy Ritchie's uh, Sherlock Holmes as well yeah. is an, uh, we're talking about. And yeah. uh, Murder by Decree is another one that I would like mm-hmm. to discuss as well. Well, we're getting ahead of ourselves, I think. but we've We, got we lot... really are. But it's we've a got... fun year. We're yeah. being optimistic about the new year, and everyone yes. should be optimistic about the next couple of months, just in general, in my yes. opinion. Yes, I agree that with is... you. Yeah. <laughs> Let, so... Let's be optimistic about it. But for now, my friend, shall we turn our attention to The Little Sister? Yes, absolutely. All right. So in getting started then, um, normally what we do here is alongside our book review, uh, we're also giving information about Chandler, Chandler's life, what's going on with him, and the context around the publication of each of the stories. Now, you've gone away and you've done a really good piece of work here. Um, you've produced about 15 minutes of context on Chandler's move, I guess if we could call it that, his transition into Hollywood writing, kind of his feelings about that, his personal life, how things have been going at that time, and how he comes back to fiction after his, we can't call it a fling because it isn't a fling, but it's certain a relationship it's not, it's not a tryst no, no no uh it was not really an affair either it's more of mm-hmm. like a um bender i guess you could say <laughs> or, i guess i don't know that's way he would probably describe it by the end yeah. of it but it's not mm-hmm. even done by that point even though he goes back to write in 1949 mm-hmm. as i mentioned he will be returning to hollywood he sure will, uh, yeah. uh again and uh and actually he's going to become a He's going to be going up. Well, he's going to be having an encounter with uh, one of your favorite, well, one of mine too, one of your favorite directors of mm-hmm. suspense. I wonder who that could be. <laughs> uh, 
which I was unaware of that he was involved. So I'm yeah. looking forward, forward to us discussing that. Well, there is a lot of good information. Can you guess the movie we're talking about, folks? But there's a lot of good information in the next 15 minutes. You did a really nice job with this piece. And I'd just like to give you a second to credit your sources here, because I know that the uh, biography on Chandler that you've read, you, you really do enjoy. And certainly it's not the only one that's out there. We all know that. But this is the one that we've kind of been using as we've uncovered his life story alongside his fictional uh, creations. Do you, do you want to just take a minute and share your sources here? Yes, it's published by Chicago Review Press. Uh, fitting since, you know, Chandler comes, was born in Chicago. Uh, this is a mysterious something in the light, the life of Raymond Chandler. And this is probably one of the most prolific, uh, detailed and far reaching biography on Raymond Chandler that's been written. Um, a man that's always been kind of like an enigma, uh, past, you know, over, over, over time about who he really was and everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tom Williams, the author has really gone into his character, uh, into his personal life and, Put, I guess, which is itself a mystery that he was kind of able to solve in his own way uh, in the pages of this book. And he really shows how Chandler developed as uh, not just as a person, but as a writer and how his writing reflected that and how his experiences throughout his life also appear in his writing. It's a very helpful uh, look into his life. And um, I, I would say a cornerstone, I think, of our of our show. So we want to, we want to acknowledge Tom Williams' uh, book here, The Life of Raymond Chandler, because while, you know, we dissect, you know, the novels themselves and, and we give our own analysis to how we feel about it, mm -hmm. I'm also in the back of my mind, you know, thinking about what uh, Tom Williams told has told me about Raymond Chandler at this time in his life and how that would reflect in his writing. Mm -hmm. uh, this book is definitely the, be the bedrock of my research into his life. And uh, if you want to read a good, bo a good book uh, about Raymond Chandler and just the, you know, the life of a fascinating American British author, I would definitely uh, recommend picking this book up. It's on Amazon. Um, I don't know how widespread the Chicago review press is, but it's, it's on Amazon if you want to order it at a decent price too. Good. And another thing, we don't usually talk much about this on the show, but um, you're also, and I think this is particularly useful in this upcoming segment, you're also a film school graduate, and not only do you understand the craft of filmmaking, but you understand the, the craft of, of studio business, if, it, if indeed I can call it a craft. <laughs> and I think some of that knowledge comes through here in this little piece too, particularly when you talk about the, you know, the, the Paramount edicts and, and the Hayes reviews and all of that sort of stuff. So yes. um, let, let's, just, uh, let's just cut over then to, to your segment on uh, Chandler and Hollywood. And then we'll we'll come back and just talk about some of the interesting things that you discovered for us. Sounds good. Chandler goes to Hollywood. The year is 1943. Raymond Chandler has just published Lady in the Lake. And in that same year, he is summoned to Hollywood. At this time, the film industry is under the regime of the studio system, but also that of the Hayes Code, the powerful censorship committee that ensured that the production of motion picture films were morally sound. Paramount was ready to adapt James N. Cain's novel, Double Indemnity. Directing the film was its director on the rise, Billy Wilder, and the film's producer, Joe Sistrom, was fully aware of the looming obstacle that the Hayes Code presented to such a film adaptation about an insurance salesman who was seduced by the wife of another man to help murder her husband. Not to mention the gratuitous sex and violence. But Wilder had his sights set on double indemnity. 
Even though his business partner and longtime producer Charles Brackett declined to produce the film because he found it disgusting. Thus, Sistrom was left to oversee the project, but it was clearly Wilder's film. Now, Wilder worked in Europe and Hollywood as a screenwriter for, for films such as Ninochka, Hold Back the Dawn, and began directing with his debut Major and the Minor. Wilder insisted James and Kane himself be hired to adapt the screenplay, but as it turned out, Kane was chained down to a contract at Fox Studios. So Sistrom, being aware of Chandler's Marlowe stories, suggested Chandler would be a good alternative to M. Kane in regard to the screenplay of Double Indemnity. So he brought his name to Wilder, and he provided Wilder majority of, of the published novels, and Wilder absorbed them very quickly. And within the time given, he was resolved to hire Raymond Chandler to draft a script for Double Indemnity. When Ray got his summons to La La Land, he had just published Lady in the Lake. So he was enticed by the offer and he accepted. Chandler read the novel, James and Kane's Double Indemnity, of course, and was also given one of Wilder's own screenplays to examine, um, Hold Back the Dawn. Chandler aimed to dive right into his adaptation, but soon found himself at odds with Billy Wilder. Wilder was annoyed at Chandler's stage directions on the screenplay what he called 80 pages of useless camera instructions. And Chandler was annoyed at Wilder's affectations, waving around his malacca cane, pacing their room, being a larger-than-life personality. For the creatively ambitious Chandler, Hollywood was very anti-artist. Simply put, he was taken out of his personal creative environment, of which he could, at his own bidding, I suppose you could say, slip into this creative mode. But now he was placed in a corporate office setting where deadlines were paramount. Pun intended. So Chandler found this new reality incredibly stifling for his own temperament and stuck in a bare bones office with Wilder for the last quarter of 43 was just too much. One day he didn't show up for work. He had left a letter explaining his absence on Sistrom's desk. The missive indicated that he was unhappy working with Wilder and called the wonderkind out on several picadillos including womanizing. Now knowing what we know of Chandler, this was a summit of his grievances beyond being not shown the respect due to him as a novelist, which he thought he earned. Again, ignorant of the whole what a writer means to Hollywood versus what a writer means to the literary community. Chandler's old puritanical streak had also reached his boiling point, although this was merely a symptom of his own issues and, was in, and he was projecting them upon Wilder. We know about his womanizing and his boozing, and it's very simple that he could have been cradily jealous of Wilder's time spent with the lady. In his bio on Chandler, Tom Williams suggests that Wilder and Chandler could have been two peas in a pod. They both spoke fluent German, Wilder being an Austrian expatriate Jew that had fled Nazi Germany. They both saw themselves as artists. They were both very much against the Nazi regime. But Williams asserts from Wilder's own words that he saw himself as a mentor, a guide to Hollywood screenwriting par excellence, and Ray Chandler was his eager pupil. This was not how Chandler saw things at all. Not to mention Chandler never really stopped drinking following his termination at Dabney Oil in 1932. And despite his marriage to Sissy corrected after all that time, he was still dabbing in every now and then, and Hollywood was about to bring this out in the open. He was sneaking whiskey in at work at this point. But Wilder was able to check his ego, and with Sistrom as the calm middleman negotiating between the two of them, he had them patch things up at best. Promises were made. After all, money was at stake. And so began Chandler's sojourn into Hollywood, one that would last him to the end of the decade where in 1949 he would vent some of his frustrations and vexations passive-aggressively in The Little Sister. 
So how did Ray fare in Hollywood? Well, he and Wilder's reconciliation brought Double Indemnity back on track. I mentioned on a previous episode that Chandler had some reservations for the stylings of Dashiell Hammett and James N. Kane, but particularly he was not a fan of Kane at all. In fact, to go back to the quote, James Kane, fuck. Everything he touches smells like a billy goat. He is every kind of writer I detest. A faux naif, a, a proust in dirty overalls, a dirty little boy with a piece of chalk and a board fence and nobody looking. Such people are the offell of literature, not because they write about dirty things, but because they do it in a dirty way. Nothing hard and clean and cold and ventilated. <laughs> the offell of literature. It's clear to say that Chandler prefers clean writing and poetic writing uh, he doesn't care much for overindulgence and he doesn't care much for pandering to the lowest common denominator and he was very much against uh, the type of language that Kane gave his characters now Wilder wanted to adapt the novel's dialogue verbatim and of course Chandler found it dishonest and overdramatic it took Chandler bringing in actors to read this dialogue to convince Wilder that Chandler would need to put his own spin on the dialogue this would be a great achievement for Raymond Chandler because he was able to wield his own stylistic paintbrush and apply it to the screenplay canvas of Kane's writing and make it his own. As for the Hayes office and all their Twitter painting about sex and violence and how the lack of it so enforced by this regime would infect the impact of the finished product, well, Chandler was key to that. He navigated these choppy waters with a plum. His particular style of honest writing and dialogue worked miracles to suggest the most serious of things with a veil of eloquence through his words. Innuendo and double entendres, metaphors for sure, but nonetheless genius. Williams also reminds us how the relationship between ill-starred Walter Neff, played by Fred McMurray, and his insurance partner, Barton Keyes, played by Edward G. Robinson, is a very Chandlerian as Keyes, if this was a Marlowe story, would indisputably be replaced with Marlowe himself. If we think of Marlowe's dynamics with other male characters in the novel, such as Marlowe and Moose Malloy, for example, that same kind of dynamic can be seen between Neff and Keyes. By November 1243, the production had wrapped. Audience loved it, critics loved it, some holier-than-thou types, such as Kinger's Kate Smith, told everyone to stay away from the film, but only drew more people in. Walder with Chandler's pen had circumnavigated the restrictions of the Hayes Code. The film was garnished with several Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture, Director, and Screenwriter Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler, but it lost out on all nominations in the end. That said, Ray had now survived his first foray into Hollywood. He would work on two or more subsequent films with Paramount, but the Hollywood factory ground down the artists in his ranks, and Chandler was no exception. He resented the corporate atmosphere, found himself clearly stifled, not to mention drunk and womanizing. Sissy, meanwhile, endured this at home, still ailing, recovering from an operation on her foot whilst her lungs worsened and their marriage revisited the drinking infidelity of the past. Ray had to clean up his act. Despite his 9-to-5 day job with Hollywood, he began to reconstruct his life and did so by returning to writing. This time, the work would be non-fiction, and his topic, the mystery genre itself. In December 1945, he published The Simple Art of Murder in the Atlantic Magazine. He provided the blueprint for the inability for detective fiction to be accepted by higher culture, and what needed to be done to bring it into the fold. How The Simple Art of Murder was put together was through his correspondence with a man named James Sandhoe, who was a librarian and literary enthusiast, particularly crime fiction. And this correspondence pretty much led to him to come up with his ideas on how you can bring, we can bring detective fiction into a higher literary pedestal. Here he's listing out the possible reasons why 
detective fiction falls behind the literary criteria? A. Most detective stories are very badly written. B. Their principal sale is to rental libraries which depend on a commercial reading service and pay no attention to reviews. C. I believe the detective story is marketed wrong. It is absurd to expect people to pay any more for it than they would for a movie. D. The detective or mystery story as an art form has been thoroughly explored that the real problem for a writer now is to avoid writing a mystery story while appearing to do so. So here we can see Chandler's own experiences just in this breakdown. He talks about how the detective story being marketed incorrectly, they're expensively marked and they're niche marketed and all this sort of stuff. So the regular public stay away from them in that way because it becomes a niche genre. And he's very well aware of this. And the very fact that you can't write a literary story about something that has detective fiction elements in it without being seen as a detective fiction. It just it keeps being pegged to its genre. He, he also goes on to say, the average detective story is probably no worse than the average novel, but you never see the average novel. It doesn't get published. The average or only slightly above average detective story does. He is very well aware you know, of the static place in which his novels are coming to. And as an, as an artist, as a writer, he wants to get out of these confines, and this he's setting up, he's setting up sort of like the plan, the diagram, I guess you would, to do so. And that's what this simple art of murder is really all about. And this is what kind of brings a spotlight on Chandler's writings and other hidden gems of the genre. Now, this was completed as Ray was just coming off of the 44 to 45 production year on his own original screenplay, The Blue Dahlia. That was a suspense slash whodunit that even brought him to the director's chair at certain times. It was a modest success that had drained Chandler's patience for the Hollywood meat grinder and had thoroughly exhausted him. It makes sense as why he would try to return things to the status quo, especially with Sissy, by returning to the writing deck. Now that same year, 1945, also saw the adaptation of his first novel, The Big Sleep, directed by Howard Hawks and starring Humphrey Bogart as Philip Marlowe. Chandler was very happy with Bogie's casting as his shop-soiled Galahad. To paraphrase Chandler, Bogart could talk tough even without a gun. Though the film's popularity and success was boosted by the incendiary real-life chemistry between Bogart and Lauren Bacall, Chandler felt that the leading lady of the film was not Bacall's take on Vivian, but Martha Vickers as the notorious Carmen Sternwood. A hot take. But if you go back and watch The Big Sleep, Vickers really stands out in that particular role. And for someone at the time playing a role like that, in, in, you know, in regard to the studio system of the era, as well as the Hayes Code. She played that role, I think, almost right off the page, in my opinion, with, you know, just toned down just a little bit for the audiences at the time. Now, of course, the sex and violence of the novel was toned down, despite the bolder productions of the post-double indemnity world. This is the age of film noir, after all. Not to mention any inkling of pornography and homosexuality present in the original text. And the ending was altered as well. Re Eddie Mars gets his comeuppance in this, and ultimately the film is a romance with the window dressings of a hard-boiled detective yarn. Some critics and audiences were confused as some critics and readers at the time in regard to Chandler's series of vaguely interconnected vignettes. This is made very clear when the production had inquired of Chandler who actually killed Owen Taylor. Geiger's sad, love-struck puppy dog murderer. Chandler replied that he himself did not know who pulled the trigger on Owen Black or uh, sapped him and drove his car off the pier or, or was a suicide. Who knows? Now, William Faulkner was originally hired to write the screenplay, but then he was soon replaced by uh, a young sc screenwriter, a woman named Lee Brackett. Now, she would later throw some Hoxian dialogue decades later on The Empire Strikes Back. But it was she who adapted The Big Sleep 
Chandler had left Paramount at this time and via producer John Houseman was about to settle into MGM Pictures where he would begin to write the adaptation of The Lady in the Lake. While Ray had been given many perks to accommodate he and Sissy over the past few years with Paramount, he would find none of that available at MGM. He was not allowed to work from home as he managed to finagle while making The Blue Dahlia. Chandler had struggled in the screenplay and disaster had loomed on the project. The war still had hovered over him at the time, and his anxieties and drinking were not helped by Sissy's condition and the friction of their marriage. Using himself as leverage, he managed to convince the producer that he would need to disabuse himself from sobriety completely in order to complete the screenplay. He wrote up a list of demands that included a, va a valet service, secretaries, and personal nurses for Sissy and for himself. With his home life looked after, Chandler dove into the bottle and cracked out a screenplay in this constant inebriated state. But now, even given a chance to adapt his own work, Chandler held no such clout at MGM. He managed to release the Blue Dahlia, but here, this strategy wouldn't even work for him. Instead, he returned to the office. He was given the bare minimum, a desk, no couch, had to work 9 to 5. By the time he started to work on The Lady in the Lake, a couch was brought in and they knew he was a hot commodity. But Ray found it difficult to get along with the new crowd. He was much older and worked hard when he could, and even though he was probably shy, he came off as snooty to his colleagues. Still, they gave him time and resources to crush out the lady in the lake, but Chandler was again stifled by the assembly line feel to all this. He struggled. As a deadline for the first draft approached, Chandler pushed himself, but the draft turned out lousy and was given to another writer to complete. One according to his biography that Chandler ensured the writer would get full credit for. Lady in the Lake went on to be a modest success, only innovative in its gimmick of utilizing Marlowe's point of view throughout the film. Chandler was not impressed by this artistic ambition, and it was just another sign of creative bankruptcy that had him fleeing his MGM stint as soon as possible. Returning to Big Bear Lake, the Chandler settled into a sense of normalcy, and Ray began an unburdening of his past years in Hollywood by bringing it face to face with Philip Marlowe. The first shots fired across Hollywood's proverbial bow was his essay, Writers in Hollywood, where he sort of burned some professional bridges with Paramount and MGM by expressing his disappointment for the treatment of screenwriters and the lack of artistic integrity in the studio system. By this point, the studios were on their way out, their monopolies were falling via the Paramount Decrees of 1948, and Chandler would return to Hollywood, but it had lost its luster, and his wife worsened. Chandler would divest himself of Knopf, finally, when they did very little to stamp on those who plagiarized his work. His publishers in England, however, showed resolve and placed the plagiarist on trial, and who Chandler was happy to see merely apologizing and announcing his plagiarism. The turn of events led him to switch publishers and Knopf was in the rear view, and Halton Mifflin in the States was in the future. The loyal Hamish Hamilton would continue to publish his works in England. And Chandler, he still had more grievances to share, and this he condensed to his next Marlowe adventure, The Little Sister. Whether it's Marlowe's encounter with studio head Julius Oppenheimer, the atmosphere on set with Mavis Weld, the superficiality of Hollywood and Los Angeles, its people and the city itself, or his own bitterness distilled through Marlowe's own cynicism and dissatisfaction is made center stage in Chandler's fifth novel. The Little Sister was serialized by Houghton Mifflin through Vogue magazine, with scenes cut and scenes added per their discretion, and a successful publication in the UK via Hamilton. It was praised by audiences and by critics, Nothing astronomical in sales, but the world was starting to learn who Raymond Chandler was. There is more left to Chandler's Hollywood story, though. But I think this is a good place to pause so Scott can give us the rundown on The Little Sister. All right, now, Josh, the uh, first place I, I want to go with that stuff, you know, I, th I think it was incredible that um, although he, he was expecting a flat sum, he was earning 750 per week. Right. 
that sum being correct, as Williams says it was, I mean, that, that's quite a stipend for him to be receiving as a Hollywood screenwriter. How much of that do you sense was connected to his reputation um, at the time? And how much of it is was just kind of what writers would be receiving? Because that is not the type of money that I would expect a Hollywood writer in the 40s to be making. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I, I wondered that myself because uh, I, I was thinking it was more of a fair kind of a very fair Hollywood price and that Chandler was just very mm -hmm. naive about what Hollywood would pay him. So and he was just like content with the amount that he was getting. But actually, he was getting much more than even I expected that, you know, due to, due to the inflation today of how much he would have been paid. So I'm thinking that you have one uh, couple of factors. One of them would be the presence of Billy Wilder. Wilder, you know, he he was a man on the rise in Hollywood. Uh, several uh, great screenwriting for a young man. He had a great screenwriting background so far. He was already directing his own films, and he had you know his eye on James and Kane's Double Indemnity, and I, he he knew what he wanted to do with the story, and he wanted to tell it in a way, despite you know the restrictions that the Hayes the Hayes Code would put on him to tell it in the right way to give it its proper impact, and I think. Working with Sistrom, Sistrom knew how good Chandler's novels was. He recommended them, and I just think with Wilder that Sistrom and the studio Paramount, mm -hmm. they knew that you know that that Chandler would be worthwhile in making this film what they needed to do, and they needed to do it because they because Wilder they they had a lot of faith in him, and mm -hmm. they would go they, they would basically maybe they thought might that he might have been overpaying Chandler, but I think. Wilder wanted to bring Chandler into the fold in his own way. As I mentioned, he saw himself as sort of like a uh, like a mentor to Chandler uh, as like a the word that um, Williams uses is like an acolyte, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and he thought that, he you know, that Chandler would be the grateful student and he would be able he would basically be creating his own protege in his own way. So yeah. I think Wilder was happy to pay. Um, yeah, that money. A, yeah. a, a little bit extra. Now that's yeah. my own supposition, and well, I you, think people, so. Yeah. People disagree with me, but I, I think it makes sense. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. I I certainly agree with you. I mean, that's how I read the situation too. That's kind of how I. I it's it's kind of like Billy Wilder gets another big name on side, right? But um, I'm just looking at another inflation calculator here that's generating that to be about eleven thousand two hundred and eighty dollars a week. So seven fifty, then worth about 11 grand today and i think that's probably more in line with uh, with how the inflation would would work yeah that sounds about right to me mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i mean that that that's a nice sum of money you know i i'm looking at that as a school teacher thinking that's all right i could i could handle getting 11 grand a week just to go over uh, now double indemnity mm -hmm. i think was the was the most popular first big popular hit of billy wilder and just to go over the films that he wrote uh, he, he was mostly a writer uh, not just director but a writer for um the Apartment, Some Like It Hot, Sabrina, who also was a Bogart, um, Sunset Boulevard, which I think might have had some Chandler influences in his writing a little bit too, in my personal mm -hmm. opinion. Some great books there. There's some great stories there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, ab absolutely. So, and he was, and he even actually, Billy Wilder, to connect it, you know, like, you know, as, as we say on uh, Bomb by Numbers, bringing it back. He wrote The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. Interesting. Yeah, which was a very good movie in its own right, too. Yeah. So yeah, cool. And that movie was scored by? Come on, let's see if you know. It was scored by... No looking that... online. No <laughs> looking online. Nicholas Rosa. Our, yeah. The, uh, 
Mm-hmm. I did look online. I'm sorry. I know you did. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, great. I recall okay. you mentioning that though. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's interesting. And I also found it quite interesting that he didn't waste much time in allowing alcohol to run his relationships there, did he? No, he did not. Now, part of this, of course, is because he's got a problem with it. And the other part, I suppose, is upon entering this world, as we see in the novel, it's just a free-flowing sort of oxygen, isn't it? Yeah, and this time he was, like, entering, like, you know, he was he was, he was in middle age at this time as well. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Williams points out that he was kind of, at this point, you know, he was he was very stuck in his ways and how he did things and, and his artistic method and how he wanted to write. And I don't think he liked being pushed around by the system and, and being put on deadlines and everything like that. And and having, you know, someone like Walder, a very, uh, I guess, a very... Um, eccentric individual i suppose and they're both eccentric in their own ways but and a very younger individual you know flaunting all the you know all his uh, womanizing and and his all his other bad habits in front of chandler you know who you know spoke out against those kind of things but practiced them in secret because he was a bit of a hypocrite mm-hmm. but he he's happy doing the job but he he wouldn't like the atmosphere in which he had to work i yeah. I, I would say mm-hmm. and i think that contributed to his drinking as well is how he coped in, in i guess in his own way well, your little bit there for us brings us up to 1949 and the publication of The Little Sister. And I do indeed have a plot summary all prepared for the show here today. You uh, sure we, do. We switch it around. We uh, we like going turnabout. So this time it was it was my turn. And uh, about halfway through this book, I started to get a bit scared <laughs> about, <laughs> about, about what the plot summary was going to do to me. But I must say, by the time I got to the end of the novel, uh, I, I had still managed to keep a pretty straight line through the narrative. Unlike the lady in the lake, I must say. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're able to do that. I think I was more just to give an idea. You know, where where, where discussion will lead. I was kind of like in your place with Lady in the Lake with this story. Like, I, right. I, was okay. able, I was able to follow it in that sense, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. But I found it uh, just more. I found it um, a little more complex than it should have been. Um, but at the same time, I, I also enjoyed where he was taking the writing in different places, even though it might have det- was detrimental to the story a little bit, in my opinion. All right. Well, why don't we then, before getting into our pipes and lighting them up for scoring and discussion, why don't we just sit back and have a little listen then to a plot summary? If you know the story well and you don't much fancy listening to a full-blown plot summary of The Little Sister, just fast forward 13 or 14 minutes and we'll get you on the other side. So here you go. Philip Marlowe is bored again. Philip Marlowe is restless again. Philip Marlowe is sitting at his desk with a bug for company. Again. In comes Orpha Mae Quest, a mousy young woman from Manhattan, Kansas. She's come to LA looking for her brother, Oren, who moved to Bay City for work a few months ago, but's gone dark without explanation. The prospect of another investigation in Bay City doesn't really thrill Marlowe, as he says, every time I go there I have to buy a new head. But it sure beats hanging out with the blue bottle flies in his office. Miss Quest only puts up $20 for the job, but we know by now that Marlowe's motivation is curiosity and the chance of ironing out some misbehavior. Among other things, Oren is said to be a keen photographer. Let's keep that in mind. Marlowe starts his investigation at Oren's last known address, a shady pot-peddling guesthouse where the superintendent, Clausen, is drunk and belligerent with Marlowe before passing out. He comes to, tries to call a doctor known as Vince, and then passes out again. He's a charming guy. Marlowe writes the number and name of Vince for safekeeping. 
Oren's old room, meanwhile, 214, is occupied by a quick-packing Mr. Hicks, a retired optometrist whose toupee is a feature focus from Marlowe. Hicks claims that Oren hasn't been there for 10 days, and Marlowe hangs quietly in room 215 for the quick-packing Hicks to leave. Returning downstairs, Marlowe hears an uneasy silence from the super's room and discovers Clausen dead, with an ice pick's handle protruding from the back of the head. The register has also been tampered with and ripped of pages, leaving no record of Orenquest whatsoever. He reports the murder to Bay City Police, but he leaves no name. Marlowe heads back to his office and makes contact with Vince, who the phone book tells him is Dr. Vincent Lagardi. The doc plays dumb when Marlowe, pretending to be Mr. Hicks, asks about Clausen and remains cool when he reveals that he's been murdered with an ice pick. The conversation ends with Marlowe knowing that the doc can show himself as legit or shady, based on how he operates with the knowledge of Clausen's death. Marlowe gets a quick visit from Orphame Quest, inquiring about his progress in locating her brother. He explains that he's not turned up much. The meeting turns flirtatious, if a little odd. Marlowe says, It hadn't been much of a kiss, but it looked like I had another chance at the $20. He then gets a call from a man offering him $100 to hold something for him. He heads to meet him at the Van Nuys Hotel, room 332, but first checks in with the hotel manager, Flack, to see what he can find out about the occupant before stepping into the unknown. After a little greasing, Flack shares that the man, Dr. Hamilton, checked in earlier that afternoon. When he reaches the room, Hamilton doesn't answer, and Marlowe enters to see a man lying down on the bed. He smells perfume and is stopped by a blonde woman, her identity obscured by sunglasses and a towel, whose loaded 32 instructs him to turn around. Marlowe waxes ironic with her for a moment, only before he's knocked to the floor by a couple of blows across the head. The woman flees, and Marlowe reclaims his gravity and searches over the room. The man who lay on the bed was Hicks, the same man he'd spoken to earlier at Oren's address, and was obviously the man who called him asking him to hold something. Like Clausen, Hicks, or Hamilton, or whoever, was also killed with an ice pick. But searching the toupee, Marlowe finds what others hadn't, a Photoshop claim ticket. He returns to Flack, the manager, who reluctantly goes to room 332 with him. The cops are called. It's here that we meet Detective Lieutenant Christy French. He and his partner, Fred Bifus, go through the motions and chat with Marlowe as they do their work. At this point, they're no more suspicious of Marlowe than they need to be, but they don't know that he's concealing evidence. The ice pick job reminds the cops of previous murders by mobster Sonny Mo Stein and his gang. Stein was knocked off by Weepy Moyer a year ago. Marlowe and the reader stash this information away, and before leaving, Marlowe secures the photo slip by sending it to his office special delivery. Without his toupee, French eventually identifies Hicks, or Hamilton, as Milo A. Marston, a crony runner for a mobster, Ace DeVore. And by association, Marlowe's search for Orin Quest is now steeped in organized crime. While this isn't a surprise to us, knowing the seedy world in which Marlowe operates, it does heighten the drama somewhat. Oren is looking less and less like an innocent guy to Marlowe and to the reader. In a convenient plot leap that falls short of full conviction, Marlowe deduces that the blonde in the hotel room was actually rising film star Mavis Weld. He also has the help of a license plate from Flack, who saw her leave the hotel. But next thing we know, Marlowe has rolled up to Doheny Drive, Crestview, home to many Hollywood types, and is knocking on Mavis's door. Before he can talk to her, he needs to shake Dolores Gonzalez, a tall, dark girl in Jodhpur's actress friend to Mavis, who sleeks about the joint like a horny bobcat. 
Gonzalez is probably the most virile character Chandler has ever written up to now. And while Marlowe appreciates her with a typical male gaze, I can't help but wonder whether her purpose in this dark satire is not to expose the corrupt sexual core of the entertainment business, or maybe to invert the misogyny of the narrative overall with a balance of equal sexual force. Either way, Dolores and her relentless amigo spraff comes across a little ridiculous in this first meeting. Marlowe sheds her like a skin when Mavis enters the room, and he wastes little time then in calling her out as the woman in the hotel room from earlier, the one who hit him and ran. Sensing blackmail, however, and the likelihood that she was searching for the pictures to protect herself, not to frame another person, Marlowe offers her his help. She's cold and critical of him, refusing it, and sends him out. On his way back to the car, Marlowe meets Steelgrave, Mavis's boyfriend. Marlowe returns to his office to collect the special delivery slip, but is first visited by Mr. Toad and Alfred, two oddball heavies sent to pay Marlowe off with $500 to quit snooping around the actress. Marlowe refuses the money, and the men leave after Mr. Toad gets the read of Marlowe, calling to apologize a few minutes later and revealing their principal, Mr. Sheridan Ballou, agent to the stars and acting in defense of Mavis Weld. Orpha May then rings the office, and Marlowe more forcefully accuses her of not disclosing everything there is to know. His suspicions are up, and he starts to show some of his cards to her, and us, in the scene when he asks what name his sister, Layla, uses in the movies. We are now encouraged to connect this blonde starlet who fled a crime scene earlier, and who refused Marlowe's help in this developing blackmail plot with his client, Orpha May Quest from Manhattan, Kansas, the one who just arrived in town to search for her missing brother. We're now wondering just how these three, nobody client, somebody would-be client, and missing brother are all connected. Marlowe collects the photographs the next morning, which show Mavis sitting at a cafe table with Steelgrave, the man from the previous night that Marlowe intercepted, leaving Crestview. It's a candid shot snapped from some distance, but details like the newspaper headline allow Marlowe to discover, with the help of his friends at the News Chronicle, that it was dated the 19th of February. Incidentally, that's the same date that gangster Sonny Mostein was murdered, and the crime which Christy French had mentioned earlier. So now there's a pretty unavoidable connection growing between Mavis, Steelgrave, and the murder of this Cleveland gangster. But Marlowe and us are the only ones who know because he's suppressing the evidence of the photographs from the police. By hook and by crook, Marlowe learns that the photos were taken by Oren, and also, through his I-don't-know-anything sister, Orpha May, that Oren is working for a shady doctor named Lagardi, who practices in Bay City. Marlowe scopes out the doctor's practice, which is situated across from a funeral parlor. Figuring that he's going to need some security, particularly as his doubts about Oren and Orpha May increase, he visits the office of Mavis Weld's agent, Sheridan Ballou. In a descriptive sequence, which sees Marlowe running the gauntlet of Hollywood admin and security, he's eventually brought before the big decadent man himself, using the photos as leverage. But instead of blackmail, which the fatigued Baloo thinks is Marlowe's aim at first, the agent agrees to give Marlowe a typed contract instructing him to act in defense of Mavis Weld. He takes this instruction to the set of Mavis's film, which offers him a chance to win some of her trust, while we get a good look at Chandler's scornful view of the Hollywood machine. After this, Marlowe heads to confront Lagardi, who calls him out as the detective that rang him on the instance of Clausen's death. 
Marlowe lays his accusations on pretty heavily here, as he shares his theory that Lagarde is a mob doctor who once practiced in Cleveland and had or has ties with the Sonny Mostein crew. Marlowe posits that he's been using creeps like Hicks, Clausen, and Orrin Quest to execute his bidding. In place of a confession, Lagarde drugs Marlowe with a cigarette laced with potassium hydrocyanide. He's kicked to the floor by an unknown figure, and a series of hallucinations leads to blackout. When he comes to, Marlowe is groggy and still in Lagarde's office. He stumbles out into the hall and meets Orrin Quest, who's just been shot, and in his death throes is lashing out towards Marlowe, who stumbles to the floor with the dying man. Marlowe leaves the scene, knowing he has to call the police, as he is far outside the law, but first wants to make contact with Orpha May to inform her of her brother's death. Returning to his office, Marlowe finds a note, however, from Dolores Gonzalez, who wants to see him. She lays on the horniness once again, pretty thickly, but Marlowe isn't taking the bait. She starts to fill in some of the gaps, too, confirming that she's jealous of Mavis and Steelgrave, having once been his girlfriend. Marlowe accuses her of knowing way more about Steelgrave and the Mo Stein murder than she lets on, regardless of whether he's connected all the pieces yet. The conversation ends with Marlowe informing her that he's working for Mavis Weld now, we know Dolores is dangerous, but not quite how dangerous or to what extent that danger might show itself. Christy French then calls, summoning Marlowe to police headquarters. He reveals that Orpha May has called in the murder of her brother. She'd been following Marlowe and called the police herself, concerned, when he didn't exit Lagarde's office. This lands Marlowe in even more hot water. Back at the office, Marlowe gets a call from Dolores, urging him to the Hollywood Hills residence of Steelgrave because Mavis is in trouble. When he arrives, Steelgrave has been shot dead, and Mavis is across the room, confessing to have killed him. The gun is the same caliber gun that was used to kill Orin back in Lagarde's office. Marlowe knows that Mavis isn't guilty, suspecting that she's merely giving or covering up for someone else, possibly Dolores, so he instructs her to leave the home. Marlowe calls the police, reports the killing to French. The cops are irritated at Marlowe, but can't hide their relief at having Steelgrave gone, marking the end of a greasy, evasive criminal that they'd been unable to hold in the past. They cuff Marlowe all the same, knowing that he's suppressed evidence and knowledge of crime scenes. As he waits for the district attorney, Chandler writes a fun little scene for Marlowe with the night porter who'd rather be playing chess than cards. Eventually, Marlowe is brought before the DA, Endicott, who actually seems to be a pretty decent fella, and who lets Marlowe out with instructions to straighten things out. Mavis, meanwhile, hires Hollywood's best defense lawyer through the help of studio head Jules Oppenheimer, and the cops realize that they don't have a case against anybody here. Orpha May visits Marlowe's office one last time, and he puts the screws to her, forcing her to acknowledge the truth that she's been keeping hidden, the truth that makes sense of all the poor connections and misinformation that Marlowe struggled with from the start, that Marlowe and the reader struggled with from the start. Mavis Weld, otherwise known as Layla, is half-sister to Orpha May and Orin. Jealous of her success, the two siblings planned to blackmail their sister. But when things weren't going according to plan, when her brother started to go dark and started working with the doctor, Lagarde, Orpha May headed out to LA to look up her brother and try her own hand at pursuing things. As it evolved, that plan involved as it evolved, that plan involved giving Steelgrave her brother's location for one thousand dollars of blood money. She then shot Steelgrave after he killed Orin. The whole thing erupts quickly on the page in typical Chandler wrap-up, but doesn't completely fool us. As it stands, 
Unraveling the criminal motivations and plot of the little sister is an act of understanding what happened in Cleveland years before, between a group of gangsters and connected alliances. And if there's a rug to be pulled out from under us here, it arrives in shape and form at the very end, when Marlo visits Dolores at her apartment. She confesses to engineering the crimes made possible by Orpha May's lodging there while in LA, so that's why she didn't give an address to Marlo. Well, he deduces that she and Lagarde were married while living in Cleveland, and Steelgrave enters the picture then. For someone so casual about sex, Marlowe is amazed that Dolores could be so passionate in crime. Marlowe realizes that he can't bring upon or even lead justice towards her without ruining Mavis's career, so he leaves, passing Dr. Lagarde on the way out. Marlowe calls the cops and returns to the apartment, but both Dolores and Lagarde are dead. And there's a plot summary of The Little Sister by Raymond Chandler. Good job there, my friend. Uh, uh, if you recall, when I finished the novel, I simply messaged you, well, have fun with that plot summary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm, it... sure, I'm sure there was a boost to your confidence, although you mm. probably had it done by that point. I hadn't got the I hadn't had the summary done, but I had the book done, and I you know I gave it a couple of days to process. But you know we we do give Chandler a, a bit of a hard time here. His stories are not that difficult to understand. But what what has been a learning curve for me is the idea of Playfair, which I did get used to with some of the later home stories, and thinking that the crime story was going to give me. Um, what its sort of uh, forefather had had offered quite generously, which was a clear line through the story with stopping places to guess here and there. Chandler has got a bucket of eels, right? I think we've said that before on the show. His yeah. narratives are like are like a bucket of eels, and sometimes yeah. he'll throw throw sometimes he'll throw in a few crabs there and a few red herrings, and um, you're trying to line it all out. And these these are really tortured metaphors, but you see my point. Fishy metaphors, one could say. Yeah, and so we do give you feel Chandler like the old man a hard in the time. sea there or something. If you want to give a Hemingway illusion, are you going to no, throw I don't, a, a, I don't a shark? Into, are you going to throw a dolphin or a shark into the uh, into the boat? Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think we have Hemingway comes anywhere near this. <laughs> but yeah, let let's do it then, pal. Let's light the pipes and give the people what they want. You want to go through our acronym? Yeah. So just for those who are coming here for the first time or simply forgot. Our acronym, PIPES, uh, P stands for principal, which is, of course, our hero, Philip Marlowe. The I stands for investigation, which is our examination of the story and the writing. P stands for perpetrators, i.e. The, um, the big bads, the villains, the antagonists. Uh, e stands for environs, I suppose the settings, the locations, the general atmosphere of Philip Marlowe's world. Mm -hmm. And finally, we have the supporting cast, S, uh, which is essentially, you know, uh, how the supporting cast supports the story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all the secondary characters that have a role secondary in the story. Secondary characters, and, yes. and Yeah, and what they do and how they influence the plot and the motivations of, of the story. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And, so there you go. And, we, and we give each one of these marks out of... Out of uh, and we give each, each each of these out of five. Like that. Yeah. That's our. That's that's what we do. And then we, that gives us a general rating that we kind of 
uh, allow us to look at the books in perspective, you know, in terms of how we feel about them and uh, and how we was their individual parts and in, in, in particular. And uh, it's a good system that we just use. It doesn't necessarily reflect, you know, how we feel about the books as a whole. But um, I just think it's a good way to measure, you know, different aspects of the novel and mm-hmm. how it's and how it's written. And it served us well with all the home stuff. And it is, as you say, just an index scoring. It is an index scoring. When we go to rank these stories, as we kind of we started doing that, didn't we, just for fun at the end of the last episode, where we would kind of put these four novels by that at that point, four that we had read, how we would rank them. Uh, it won't necessarily mean that those are the pipe scores ranked. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of it, it informs our overall scoring for sure. Well, let's go then. Uh, let, let's start with principles then. Philip Marlowe. How did you find Philip Marlowe in this story, Josh? Uh, I think he was one of the strongest parts of the book for me. I'm just saying that right now. I think, you know, his bitterness, you know, is definitely earned by this point, uh, given all that he's been through. <laughs> yeah. Uh, particularly towards Bay City. Particularly Bay City. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm wondering, I keep wondering, Scott, maybe this is a bit of an aside, but... Mm-hmm. Was Chandler afraid to paint Los Angeles in a bad light because maybe of people he knew or whatever? And he created Bay City to be this sort of like Babylon adjacent to the other Babylon, Hollywood, mm. uh, that he could focus a lot of, you know, frustra- a lot of his frustrations about Los Angeles society in particular in his novels. I'm just wondering if that was a choice on his behalf, because we know that uh, Bay City is basically a fictional city that's based off Santa Monica, mm-hmm. which is like, you know, a, a part of the Los Angeles area, so to speak. But it's but it's not really a city itself. He puts it in his own little zone, I guess. And I guess maybe he just felt that he could write freer in those circumstances. He wasn't constrained by the Los Angeles uh, city limits, the environs of, of, of Los Angeles and the, the well-known geography of Los Angeles. And and with the Bay City, he had more room for expression and exploration. Uh, I think that's exactly... I, I know this is more into the environs, I guess you could say, but... No, it isn't. I, I, I think it, you're It plays right. a part into Marlowe's mm-hmm. view, in my opinion. I think you're correct. I, I think you, you have everything there. As a writer... It enables Chandler to write without fear of, yeah, without fear of criticism or blame or sort of smearing any one particular person. Uh, yes, it's loosely based on uh, Santa Monica in terms of uh, geopolitics, maybe, but certainly not not literal politics. I, I think Bay City has its own code. <laughs> it certainly has its own um it's it own does, creative, yeah. you know, its own creative energy, and it it's just a smart move by a writer to create an adjunct, like or an adjacent town, into which he can put all of these vile creatures, so that the people reading in Marlowe's hometown might be able to associate more heroically with you know what's going on there. I I just think it makes sense. It gives him the room and the real estate to explore characters and kind of darker, grottier motivations without needing to say it happens at this place or it's there or watch your back if you're walking through this part of the city it's a safety prerogative of the writer i guess i also think chandler really shows how like that famous chivalry of of philip marlowe has sort of degraded uh by this point here like he's even kind of like flirting deliberately with mm-hmm. orphan quest you know like 
is he is it because you know at this point he knows something's up with her or because you know that he's just somehow attracted to her and, and it, because of, of just the way that she is or something like is there sort of like a a possessive nature to him or is he just kind of just stirring the pot so to speak and seeing what what reactions he can get from people you know I think like, he's I, doing yeah i think he's doing a bit of that the, the stirring of the pot which is born of his jadedness i think and and just yeah. how tired he is with the whole enterprise of his work at this stage in, in his career but i also think that if you know if, if you look back on the other marlowe stories every female character who's approached him client or otherwise who's had glasses you know he has this thing with like taking off the glasses and seeing the real face right now i it's don't the, know it's, if the, that's... it's the classic like uh oh the librarian takes off her her, her <laughs> yeah. hair bun yeah. and yeah. and her glasses and all of a sudden you know she's like i don't know uh cindy crawford or something <laughs> like that just to show, yeah. no, that just shows how old I am. That just shows but, how old you are. But, yeah. but I know what you mean. Like the geek at high school, right? Takes off her, lets her hair down and takes off her glasses, right? And she becomes the beauty queen, that type of silliness. Yeah. yeah exactly. that, that's It's probably part of that. But um, I don't know. There might be something more emblematic going on there too about, you know, disguise and how he, he's basically stripping disguise away. But yeah, you're right. He's definitely flirtier in here. I don't know how much I agree with you though that that sort of sh- chivalrous nature, that sort of noble knight that we saw in earlier texts has completely disappeared because no, I, I, I think degra- I say it's degraded. Like, yes, it has. There, there, it's got more punctured. Measure, there's more puncture. There's this measure mm-hmm. of cynicism to it. Like, yeah. and there's even kind of like where you see Marlowe's even more lustier. I think in this story, like he just seems like he's in he's in a lower spot than he was before, and that's sort of like bit of class that he had even even when he was dealing with women before putting themselves in front of him and he was like if you can consider back you know to Carmen Sternwood in his apartment he just tears its bed apart because the fact that she was in there and soiling it in the way that he believed mm-hmm. um he still has that attitude about him and stuff but he's a lot more aggressive about it in my opinion he and, is I, I would say that this is a story where there's a lot more sex around Marlowe, but I true, I, I true. still, that, I still that, credit him. Way, that's a good way to put it. That is a very good way to put it. There's more sex around him because the writer obviously has had his experience with mm-hmm. that yeah. uh, for the past you know half a decade now. Mm-hmm. So he's putting that into his writing. Also, you could also be that um, where the Hayes Code took over the Hollywood system, you can kind of see maybe – that's when I think a lot of more expression for writers and storytellers would be in novels where they could be a bit more implicit and get away with that. And maybe Chandler was kind of playing to that genre or playing to yeah, that trend, so. I suppose yeah. you could say, to give that a bit of more gritty realism, despite the fact, you know, that he kind of dings Kane for that <laughs> from before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Chandler's had his experience with it. There's definitely more sex around him, but I don't think that Marlowe always rises to it. In fact, he puts down... No, he, he, he puts down Dolores quite a few times in this story. You know, she's throwing oh, herself he, at him. He really does. And um, yeah, like I'll, I'll get into that. But that that puritanical streak, it's still present in him. And especially around, you know, that, you know, sex pot murderous Gonzalez. So he speaks of her in nearly erotic terms. And then he has previously, you know, we, we talked about that, right? But you can tell he's also repulsed by her because mm-hmm. he keeps referring to her as a whore uh, mm-hmm. several times. Yeah. Like, yeah. why are you acting or why are you dressed like a whore, right? Yeah. Uh, he plays with Orpha Mae Quest's innocent small-town Kansas girl, whether somehow seduced by her wholesomeness, which isn't really there in, in, mm-hmm. in the long run, mm-hmm. or he's fully aware that he's, she's putting on an act that she herself may not be aware that she is putting on. Because when we re- once we get the reveal about Orphan Quest, we know for a fact that she is what she is completely, and Marlo realizes that in the end, 
right? Like they yeah. believe that what they, they are they are right all the time, both her and Orin, and what mm-hmm. they do is absolutely mm-hmm. right, and no one can contradict them. Mm-hmm. Like they are true sociopaths, and how they were formed, and it seems even by like their own family. It seems like what Chandler is suggesting is that they were pretty much preformed by their parents as well, and how they look at the world. Um, now. Then we got to look at, of course, what Tom Williams describes as the soliloquy, you know, that whole rant about being human Mm -hmm. and Marlowe's apathy towards the fate of of Dolores when he leaves her to Lagarde's devices. Uh, He prefers, you know, to find justice outside of the law because he knows that the system is flawed, despite, you know, guys like Christy French defending that system as a day-to-day cop. But he knows that there are workarounds that that the that the, that the that the criminal uses in order to uh, circumvent those uh, circumvent justice from occurring, and justice can only be found uh, on the on the on the outskirts of that. And Marlowe is doing that. He's still like you know in his own way the knight in shining armor, so to speak. But he uses a different lance, I guess you could mm-hmm. say, or a different horse and lance, or uh, and sword and shield. Uh, other than the one you know that is currently existing, at, which is of course the the judicial system. Mm-hmm. Well, shall we just read and uh, share a little bit about that? It's it's a great section, chapter thirteen, that you you just gestured toward the the jadedness that we get in that sort of human um, monologue, or uh, the not monologue, the what do you call it? What do Williams refer so, to it as? The soliloquy. Solilo- yeah. Soliloquy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Let's just share a little bit of that. Tired men in dusty coupés and sedans winced and tightened their grip on the wheel and ploughed on north and west towards home and dinner and evening with the sports page, the blatting of the radio, the whining of their spoiled children and the gabble of their silly wives. I drove on past the gaudy neons and the false fronts behind them, the sleazy hamburger joints that look like palaces under the colours, the circular drive-ins as gay as circuses with the chipper hard-eyed car car hops, the brilliant counters, the sweaty greasy kitchens that would have poisoned a toast. Great double trucks rumbled down over Sepulveda, Sepulveda from Wilmington and San Pedro and crossed toward the ridge route, starting up and low from behind or from the traffic lights with the growl of lions in the zoo. Behind, yes. behind Encino, an occasional light winked from the hills through thick trees, the homes of screen stars. Screen stars, fooey, the veterans of a thousand beds. Hold it, Marlowe. You're not human tonight. I ate dinner at a place near Thousand Oaks. Bad but quick. Feed him and throw him out. Lots of business. We can't bother with you sitting over your second cup of coffee, mister. You're using money space. See those people over there behind the rope? They want to eat. Anyway, they think they have to. God knows why they want to eat here. They could do better at home out of a can. They're just restless, like you. They have to get the car out and go somewhere. Sucker bait for the racketeers that have been taken over the restaurants. Here we go again. You're not human tonight, Marlowe. I paid off and stopped in a bar to drop brandy on top of a New York cut. Why New York, I thought. It was Detroit where they made the machine tools. I stepped out into the night air that nobody had yet found out how to option, but a lot of people were probably trying. They'd get around to it. I love that line. That's one of my favorite parts of the whole story. You know, the idea that even the oxygen in this place can become corrupted. <laughs> you know, it can be bought yeah. and sold it's for, and manufactured. It's for sale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely, definitely. Good. That's a really incisive point. But I agree with you, man. I, I really like Marlowe in this story. He is darker and he is grittier in his nihilism and that cynical worldview that you mentioned. But you know, he's he's still very noble, and I, I really love this about him. He knows that Mavis or Lila is being used in some way, or at the very least 
she's not aware of the situation, of its true danger. And he does set to defend her, and he goes to some length to defend her. You know, he he, he does. He goes through I mean, the the gauntlet of um, Baloo's office and all the different administrative and sort of security chains along that or links along that chain, and he gets yes. in there and he gets the contract. You know, and and when he convinces. Balu to give him a right to act on her, knowing that she's been blackmailed. It's it's partly Marlo wanting to follow the case, yes, and to follow his nose and see what else is going on, which is his characteristic curiosity. But he is also attracted to her as this sort of innocent Hollywood type in a very yes. in a Hollywood machine that doesn't care about human beings, you know. And right. he he detests it so much. He tries to see her right through it. Um, little does he know, I guess, how right his hunch is, though. You know that um, that his. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But yeah, I, I like him. I think he's really good. And it is interesting also. He is a, made a more interesting character because that animal magnetism, which he doesn't really care about, like to him, it's just this it's just this thing, right? Like sex, sex is just, everywhere. Just yeah. It's just biology. Exactly. Yeah. It, his animal magnetism, it, it just seems to be heightened by Chandler here, and it's deliberately and considerably more noticeable. He's more attractive to different sorts of women here in this story. It's not just it's not just the Doloreses of the world, you know, that or the Carmen Sturmans. Yeah, just he, wanna... he's looking. He's looking around. He's seeing all the temptations. Yeah, like that whole yeah. scene with Oppenheimer in the courtyard. Mm -hmm, it mm -hmm. talks about you know we have that whole you know brilliant thing with Oppenheimer and his and <laughs> yeah. his dogs. Yeah, that's cool. But then but, but but then you also have you know like the script girl or whatever or the or the production assistant girl right, walking yeah. by and her hips are making music as he's watching mm -hmm. her walk away, right? Yeah. And so And you've got Helen Grady as well, who's Sheridan Grady. Baloo's secretary. And then there's that yeah. girl yeah. at the Van Nuys Hotel, the receptionist. Yeah, the Yes, exactly. And everywhere yeah, you yeah. go, you're right. He sees it everywhere, and they all see him in that sort of kind of a kind of partly want you way. And it's it's really interesting that the, the Chandler's pen is more vulgar here. And and I wonder, Josh, how right you are in what you suspect about this being a world that Chandler's writing more now because he's lived it more. Yes, I I, I really feel that. Hmm. And, uh, yeah. Uh, Helen Grady, yeah, I was forgetting her name. I always referred to her as the redhead, but yeah, Helen Grady, that's right. Yeah. yeah. But uh, his scorn for Hollywood and, and sort of the grime that surrounds the business is so evident in the story. It it, um, it It's really loud, actually, you know. But yeah, Marlowe's well-written here, man. He's He's got some really, really, really great lines. Again, like we haven't made a list of them, but if you, I think maybe looking back on the series now that we're getting to the end of it, this might not be a book I recommend for its narrative. It might not be the best story, but this is a great Marlowe piece. It's a wonderful yes. look into his mind. And Chandler gives him some wonderful lines that even though we know he's struggling with alcohol at the time in his life, uh, he has not lost any ability to write cracking metaphors and similes. Like he, he's just one hell of a writer in that respect. He really is. Mm -hmm. And going back to Marlowe here, I really think, too, is that, like, I think he put Marlowe, I think, to the crucible in this story. I think he wanted to give Marlowe every temptation, mm -hmm. every mm -hmm. every bit of, you know, of showing what, what this world can do to a person. And he really wanted to take his shop soil Galahad, you know, and see how low he can bring him. Almost mm -hmm. like, you know, like bringing Arthur down, you know, like in terms of the fall of Camelot and all yeah, that. And seeing if, if he could survive above it. But just going back to it, though, I think that, like, his cover-up of Silgrave 
Maeve's death uh, in the in the hope either it was a for the pursuit of protecting Mavis or B in the pursuit of also of also determining, you know, what Orphame would do about this or how she would react mm -hmm, to it mm -hmm. regard. And despite, you know, French's big speech about how, you know, like we are hardworking cops, we're we're doing what we have to do and, and we have to feed our families as well. And guys yeah. like you make this difficult for this to happen. Mm -hmm. But deep down, Marlowe knows that. French, despite, you know, his his own sort of self-righteousness about his work and everything and what he does, he he, he still hasn't risen to that plane where Marlowe's got to, That's where, right. you know, yeah. it's more yeah. about justice and not just, you know, just like, you know, just doing the daily grind and getting things done mm -hmm. uh, in, in the, in the by, by the book and then going home. It's much, much more than that. And part and, of that, part of that is really evident, too. Like you talk about Chandler putting Marlowe to the crucible here and I agree with you and you can see it in French particularly after that second murder has been um, has been revealed to him you see that in French you, you almost get the idea that they want him to be another guy that gets suckered into this they want him to be another guy that can't rise above it that they can make easy target but he's not and that really frustrates them too that yes he's not playing on the side of the law but he's also clearly not one of the other ones either you know he's not a corrupt figure and I think yes. they would like him to be an easy target that way yeah I agree I agree with that and then of course you have the ultimate crossing the line of Marlowe I think and just I think the show is apathy for what he's been through mm -hmm. and how this will affect him in the future we don't know but I guess we'll find out is how he basically leaves Dolores to her death you know like yeah, in his yeah. own in his own mind you know like he felt this was poetic justice and it's, it's almost like you know that scene in Batman Begins where where you know he tells Rachel Ghoul you know that he's like I'm not going to kill you, but I don't have to save you. And mm -hmm. so he lets Radical Gould die on the train and all that, right? So it's that it's that kind of thing where the hero decides to, in a way, like not do everything he possibly can to save the villain from their from their ultimate fate. Instead, he just lets it happen. And I think he, even the writing suggests that Marlowe is going to be haunted by that, mm -hmm. which is very important to his character. It is. And I guess what we're both saying here is that Marlowe as a figure, as a literary character, as a human is really worked out here by Chandler. For, you know, he's put through the ringer, um, maybe not physically the way he has been in some of the texts, like Farewell, My Lovely, for example. But he's definitely put through the ringer in terms of, yeah, here's what you could be. You could have this. You could be sucked into that. Can I tempt you with this? Go ahead. Take a bit of that. And he doesn't. He, he is aggressive. He is jaded. He is cynical. But that streak mm -hmm. of nobility that we've seen in the past is still very much alive it's, there. It's still underneath yeah. the surface. Yes. And it, and it guides and him towards, towards kind of rescuing or, or trying to protect at least the one bright light that he sees. Even though she doesn't like him much, he does defend Mavis well yeah. in, in in an interesting way. Yeah, he's, it's, I think this definitely sets up, you know, that whole Marlowe dynamic that I see like in so many different films and, and stories about how this detective just falls for this female character that doesn't want anything to do with them or is just far at a distance. Yeah, yeah. He's investigating her mm -hmm. uh, and then all of a sudden, and then, you know, and then he becomes totally obsessed with her. Not like in a sense of where, you know, like it's a bit romantic thing. It just seems like it's almost like this uh, high-minded uh you know, quest, I guess you could say, mm -hmm. um, in, in, in order to protect her honor, so to speak, even though, you know, it's probably long been corrupted, but he wants to still preserve what honor there is left. And, mm -hmm. uh, that's what kind of makes, that's what kind of makes Marlowe's, uh, portrayal in this particular story, uh, really, uh, really pop out. And I think, uh, in terms of grading this part of the, the, the little sister, I have to give the first time I think the principal five on 
Okay, on well, well, I went yes. four. I went four point five. So I'm I'm not far nice. away from you. I think that this is the best feature of the story. This is a Marlowe story for sure. He's uh, he's really interesting to follow, and he's fun to listen to. And his dialogue is is sharp, and it pops. And yeah, he he's he's everything that that we like. But you get to see a bit more of his. Um, I won't say a bit more of his cynicism. I, I, what I might say is you get to see the color spectrum of that cynicism a bit differently. Yeah, I would say uh, The High Window and The Little Sister, I think, if you want to get an idea about the, the psychology of Philip Marlowe, mm -hmm. those that's, two that's novels shout, of, yeah. of all of Chandler's uh, Philip Marlowe adventures, uh, those are the two to read if you really mm -hmm. want to like get an insight on Marlowe's um, personality mm -hmm. yeah. and what he, what, what he is about. All right, so let's move on then to investigation. We we clearly like the principles of this story. I don't, I'll start with this, but um, investigation for me, I, I went 3.5. And the reason I went 3.5 is because I, I was interested in following it, and I could follow it a little bit better than I could follow The Lady in the Lake. Okay. Um, a couple of points, though, that I'll, just a couple that, I, that I'll talk about, um, because we did go through the plot summary, and you know we don't need to do that again for the listeners or for ourselves. But... You know, I don't know that we can call it a tip, but Flack's tip is is a pretty vague one for him. Like that whole like who? who okay, so Flack, Flack very gives, convenient, very, very convenient. yeah, very convenient tip that sees us move from ch chapter eleven to chapter twelve. Like Marlowe goes from who was that blonde in the room to calling up Mavis Weld, right? Like it happens really quickly, and I, I don't know that Flack's tip is 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 really substantial enough. It felt a bit lazy there to me. Like here we're moving from this to this. In a, in a story where every little detail is important, we don't have any idea how Marlowe gets, with the exception of a license plate, um, we don't know how he gets to from who's this blonde that hit me with her pump in the hotel room to I'm at Mavis Weld's front door. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, maybe if there was more insight into Flack's character than mm -hmm. just being, you know, kind of like a bit of a, cow a coward, so to speak, and uh, a guy who doesn't want much trouble and hates the job that he has because mm -hmm. um, he's just so you know obtuse not obtuse but he's probably just so like oblivious to everything else because he's just wallowing in, in you know in, in his life and it is I guess in his life choices at the, at the moment yeah that I guess he just didn't pay you know that he would notice someone like Mavis stand out I suppose and I think maybe maybe that kind of like distracted him I guess from his ennui and that's what sort of made him uh uh, proactive, I guess, in finding out who she was. And it was just very convenient, I guess, in terms of moving the plot forward, that he was able to convey that to Marlowe. Yeah, but he didn't say who she was. No, he just, but... He just scribbled down over license plate number he, and... Yeah, like, he, he basically wrote down the license plate number to me because I think uh, he might have wanted to have that just, I guess, for, who knows, personal mm -hmm. information yeah, okay. or... Or maybe creep, creepy stalker, like who knows, right? Like it's he, he hard just, to say. He just doesn't strike me as <laughs> maybe a creepy stalker, okay? But he doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't strike me as like a calculating guy. Well, then again, he did steal a hundred and forty pound uh, bucks. He stole yeah, hundred forty bucks off a dead body, so. He was desperate and shady, that guy. Like, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, going, was, I'm, yeah. I'm going to say that. But I kind of see your, what you're saying about that, you know. Narratively, it kind of like, it just, it's very convenient. Yeah, narratively. Like, why would he, in this particular reason, want to go write down the license plate? Like, it just doesn't, yeah, just, it doesn't, just, doesn't no. point doesn't gel. It just seems like they're just trying to push forward the next, mm -hmm. uh, the next, the next panel, I guess you could say, to use a comic, <laughs> yeah. to use a comic book term. Because mm -hmm. that's something that, you know, that the old comic book writers did in the day. Like, Stan Lee, for example, th they realized, you know, that story, when it connects, 
you just got to connect it to the next panel. It doesn't necessarily have to make sense because you can That's just right. write in like a speech balloon mm -hmm. and explain, you know, how they got to where <laughs> they were. But you really can't do that in a novel. So that's why it kind of sticks out here, in my opinion. Yeah. And that, you know, so that was one of the things that that, uh, that bothered me a little bit. But, you know, the, the thing that I didn't like about Lady in the Lake and one of the things I also found that was difficult with, um, uh, what's the other one? The high window, but really the lady in the lake is how this big plot drop at the end or this data dump at the end showed us how everything connected, right? I didn't like that. I felt it was, you know, twist character, twist character, data dump. There you go. Stories revealed. Now, you, you played along with that just fine. I wasn't able to do that so well. Here in this story... I was expecting another twist at the end, and I really did like Marlowe's reveal of Orpha May and Oren both kind of teaming up to get money out of their half-sister, you know? Oh, I, that I did like that, too. I thought that was really good, and I enjoyed that as a twist, and I, I was playing along with it, and then it made sense to me. The other things dropped, because it was a great final scene, particularly it laid out how how these things that didn't add up for him at the beginning when he first met her now add up for him, right? And I, I get all of that, like how she couldn't say where she was staying because she was actually staying with Dolores, right? How she couldn't say where Oren was because Oren was actually in involved with some pretty shady stuff that would hurt her ability to convince him of, yes. of, of the investigation. But I didn't, like, so I was, I was happy with all of that, but, but I didn't but like the next twist then we got this yes. whole thing where Dolores has to be the, the engineer behind it all and that bothered me I, I would have thought it like why does he have to go there like he's given me a twist he's impressed the reader he's made it tied up and then we go and there's an even bigger puppeteer you know I felt like yeah. we don't need a bigger puppeteer Dolores and she's not even Mexican either that was that's right yeah she's not even Mexican, Mexican. <laughs> yeah I guess that yeah. he wanted to kind of maybe he didn't want to sound racist to Mexicans although I don't know why he would care back then but <laughs> yeah I don't think that bothered him in the past has it he talks, uh, yeah. The way he talks about Jewish people, the way he talks about blacks, the way he talks about you know African Americans, I don't see that he he cares much. No, so but I, I but I think it's just it's just he just needed it to reinforce you know that she was part of the whole mob thing back in mm -hmm. Cleveland as well, mm -hmm. uh, pro, pro, you know possibly Steel Steelgraves girl ex girl ex wife. Um, that's what Marlowe kind of comes to anyway. Lagardi, uh, Lagardi's ex wife. Yeah, sorry, Lagardi's ex wife. I meant to say. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and then, but I think that was a, a rough connection as well because he it had was, two threads. Yeah. He had two threads that he had to undo by the end of it. Two hanging threads. Yep. There was still Michelle. What to do with her character? Sorry, Michelle. Dolores. 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 Exactly. There was still Dolores uh, that he had to deal with. On top of that, he had also what what what, what is going to do do with Lagardi? Like, how does Lagardi fit, fit in as well? Well, he's just these two characters that appear just to help the narrative mm -hmm. out. I think Chandler wanted to make them fit in the overall package. Uh, and so he, he did this last thing, I think. But to me, that's when I rolled my eyes. I even rolled my eyes at Orpha May Quest's kind of... I like the <laughs> idea of, you know, that she's like a small-town secretary, sociopath. Like, I thought that was that was a cool twist. Mm -hmm. But again, we're back to, you know... Uh, uh, we're back to, like, you know, um, a female being a villain again. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we had to maybe throw on top of that another female being the villain as well and the overall engineer of all this perfidity. And so... It just seems, you know, like it was just kind of like going a bit too uh, misogynistic. I yeah, I mean, it is. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, it was, it was a bit over over misogynistic in that way. And the very fact that he very much sexualized uh, Dolores in this story throughout, to me, um, it seems like again he was basically this was his Puritan mindset yeah, attacking, definitely, you know, definitely. what really repulsed yeah. him in, in mm -hmm. his own way, and that everyone, you know, like you know, 
and again, probably also showing, you know, his own temptations and his own desires and criticizing them in his own yeah. way, I guess, I guess you could say. Well, maybe because Josh. Because this, maybe... this is a guy who basically married his mother, essentially, if you think about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, you're right. But I have to ask you this question. Five books in then, did powerful, sexually confident women intimidate, frighten Marlowe the way that, you know, we, we might talk about um, ma- male figures in the Hemingway oeuvre. Like, how, how does Chandler feel about these characters? He's written enough of them now that make me think that any woman who is, at least through his eyes, any woman who is sexually endowed or prolific or promiscuous or confident or expressive is somehow evil. And I, you know, I, I don't like well, that. I- it's funny, like uh, he was talking about some of the of the actresses that he worked with. I didn't mm-hmm. really get into this. I didn't get into this at all in my uh, you know examination of his time in Hollywood. But there was like when he was filming the Blue Dahlia, uh, the actress that was playing um, one of the main roles in the film was Veronica Lake. Now Veronica Lake yeah. is associated with no, with the noir genre. Absolutely, yeah. And if, if you look into you know like Curtis Hansen's uh, 1998 film L.A. Confidential, uh-huh. Kim Basinger was a person that was made up to look like Veronica Lake, you know, as as a prostitute. So I mean, this is this, this is a, a this is an actress that you know in the hard boiled detective fiction is well known. Chandler calls her, and Williams describes it, Veronica Lake. Because he thought she could do like a very good pose mm-hmm. and look troubled and and all this kind of stuff, but she, apparently she was a terrible actress, mm-hmm. and and uh, Chandler had a lot to say against her. Um, so it seems surprise to, me. He's probably a literary snob in his own way too, and like and he didn't like some of the women that he worked with in Hollywood, like some of the screen like the young screenwriters. He, he didn't get along very mm-hmm. well with them, you know. I know he didn't work on The Big Sleep, so I don't know what he would think of a young screenwriter like Lee Brackett, mm-hmm. who was just coming out at the time, you know, to work in to, to work in Hollywood. I don't know how he felt about her. And of course he wasn't on the on the on the big sleep project, but I don't know how he felt about other female colleagues that he was with. But um he didn't like how a lot of these modern women of the time, you know, how they were very open mouthed about, you know, sexuality and uh it just like, you know, swearing and, you know, trying to be one of the boys, I guess, you know, in the Hollywood club. Yeah. And uh he found that I guess his Puritan nature kind of found that very repulsive as well. So it is interesting, though, buddy, because we keep coming back to it, you know, the, the figure, which he is in part responsible for creating this femme fatale figure, right? That's so very, very popularized and, and generic. But Orpha May Quest is a small backwater girl who is jealous and has an idea of making money, you know, a sociopathic figure, as you say. Dolores is an actor who, or an actress who, who wants more and sees opportunities to use her body and her sexuality to just take advantage of situations. And, now, and in her time period, that makes sense, you know. And of course it I does, say, yes. And yeah. I say, you know, go for it, girl. Yeah, absolutely, and, go for it. But, yeah. but I, I can't help but view through, through the moralistic lens, that Puritan lens, that Chandler is is viewing these women through and he's creating these women they're all bad and these are worlds that are corrupt by the making of men really and the female characters are the ones that stand out as the bigger villains even though you've got Steel Graves and Legardis running around Maglashans you know you've got these characters who are just repulsive figures but it's the bad women that always stand out and I'm wondering how much of that is 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 psychologically uh, rooted in Chandler's own experience of Mm. women or his 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 
feelings of control, maybe a reduced masculinity, this this sort of mother thing he's got going with Sissy. Is there anything in there that you read now five stories in that can connect the psychology of these female characters to some sort of some sort of impulse within the writer, this insecurity, or am I making too much of it? Uh, maybe maybe a little too much, but at okay. the same time, right. those I think you picked up on those little on those clues, so to speak, uh, quite well, and and that kind of you know lends more to the mystery or solving the mystery, I guess, of Raymond mm. Chandler, and I guess we'll have to explore his life further, you know, and see how it ended up, uh, I yeah. guess, in the end, yeah. Yeah. Uh, to see you know to overall kind of get a picture of who he mm-hmm. was and if his if his writing was you know reflective of his own life and his own uh, feelings, I guess, towards uh, society and particularly female society in, in general. Okay, well, I'm five stories in and I'm starting to make impressions. I haven't, you know, yes. cemented, I haven't cemented uh, them yet, but I'm starting to make them. And this book has gone some distance in helping me, yeah. <laughs> helping me do that. I have chipped away the old, I guess, the old brick or whatever they used to make sidewalks with, the old cement pieces. <laughs> and I got the, you know, I got the cement mixer ready to go and I'm about to pour it in. Okay. That's kind of where I am right okay. now with my, right. with my final assessment of Raymond Chandler. Okay, cool. Well, my investigation score, just going back to it, was 3.5. It's Same a good, with me. It's, it's a good, oh, okay, right. So it's a good story, um, but there are some of these big reveal moments that I thought were were wasted a bit too much, you know, a bit too much for the narrative, didn't need it. I would have been happy if we had left it with Orpha May's surprise and her um, her and Oren's plan to blackmail. There was a hobby as a photographer. Yeah, I would have I would have gone with that. But now nah, we had to complicate it in an extra extra minute and have uh, Dolores, the big bad. But even so, I mean, in terms of perpetrators moving into this now, Josh, number uh, a third pipes feature, um, I, I subdivided the perpetrators into large, medium and small and kind of kind of like a, a McDonald's diet, I guess. I've got Steelgrave, <laughs> Dolores and Dr. Lagardi as the large perpetrators. I've so, got, so they would be like the Big Macs then. Or the, the, yeah, or the, the, or, that's or, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah the Big okay. Macs, and then I got then I got the Quarter Pounders, um, who are the Orphan May Quests and the Orin Quests, and then then you got your Chicken Nuggets, your Maglashans, and your Flax of the world, and maybe a Clausen, yeah. but Cla- Clausen is is peddling dope, right? But yeah, uh, and so. I don't know how you feel about doing the large, medium, and small thing, but in in a in a Raymond Chandler story, there's always more than one perpetrator, and it's never yes. clear who the big bad is, you yeah. know. And then there, of course, there's the Hollywood system as well that we haven't really. That's that's kind of the the elephant in the room, or not? Yeah, so are they, not as it are, is? Are, yeah. are they a perpetrator, or are they, are they just yeah. you know? Or are they just, you know, like coloring for the supporting uh-huh. cast, right? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and also, so, and going back to, you know, to the investigation, are you know, it's simply, you know, it's the writing of dialogue and characters, you know. It's a satirical aspect that Chandler is trying to put into the story, yeah. and that seems more of a functionary role than it is really a necessary character role. Yeah, but I think it, yeah. it adds to the uh, impression we get of Mavis Weld uh, mm-hmm. in, in the overall story, so I think it's important. But not in perpetrator important, in my not opinion. Not in perpetrator not, important, not, yeah. not perpetrator specific. Okay, cool. Well, I went three for the perpetrators. I, I, yeah, I did too. I enjoyed them. You know, I enjoyed them, but... I don't know. It's like I said in my plot summary, though, you know, like you got to understand in understanding the perpetrators of this story that what what's behind it all is what happened in Cleveland years ago. This group of people and their alliances who have informed the activity of 
Raymond Chandler's investigation. They're the ones really, not Orphame Quest, they're the ones who are the perpetrators. And the rest of these little bit players are just kind of picking up and sweeping up the floor, you know, of what they've done yeah. and left behind them. So you've got Ligardi, you've got Steelgrave, you've got Gonzalez. These are all, and to a certain extent, you know, you've got um, the stories of Mostine and Weepy Moyer, Steelgrave. You've got what what was going on there. That's what's really behind this this story. And, is that is that gang is that gang feud so yeah. to speak, be, 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 between them yeah. and and uh, Dolores goes back to that as well mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so that sort of connects them a little bit now the one thing about the antagonist and then you would talk about you know Weepy Moyer and Stein even the guy who was killed in front of the apartment building uh, you, those particular things I think it's because Chandler was writing from a historical perspective on those characters because if you look for example I know I know they say you know that these guys originated from Cleveland historically if you look at Brooklyn gangsters in particular uh stein is supposed to have been based on bugsy siegel oh really and cool. and the one and of course still grave is supposed to have been on a very well-known gangster who was part of the crew of bugsy siegel and that was uh mickey cohen who kind of took over siegel's racket uh after a- afterwards because once uh siegel had i guess established himself in las vegas he then moved on to california uh into los angeles in particular and that's when he was gunned down and so this is when Mickey Cohen takes over that whole operation. Um, and of course, like Capone, Mickey Cohen gets ma- nailed for uh, uh, in- income tax as well. Okay. But so Chandler was writing, as I was saying, from a historical perspective on these characters. So that's why I think he was just using them as sort of like convenient allusions, I guess you could mm-hmm. say, to, to support the overall story that he was telling. Yeah. So then he never really went into much detail about him. And that's why Stilgrave is kind of a non-entity in there. Uh, just convenient to get to the plot so that we can connect this to Orphame Quest, connect this then in the end to Dolores, and then get uh, Lagardi in there just to tie things up in a nice little bow. Yeah, well, a nice little bow too. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, but it's 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 a bow that ultimately leaves both the police and Ch- Chandler with nothing to do. And yeah, you kind of question the whole purpose of it all, right? Exactly. Yeah, because what could have changed the outcome of that story? I mean. The only reason Lagardi went to kill Dolores was because she was with Stillgrave at some point, or did he, did uh-huh. he just go? Yep. Did he, or did he just go and kill her just because, like, he, because he's a, a crazy guy uh, who you know <laughs> peddles dope and at the same time? Well, you we know, don't like, know, do we? We don't know. Yeah, it's, we it's don't just kind of it's, it's, it's shoehorned it's very, in there. It's very, very vague. I like the fact when, when by the way, we're speaking of Lagardi, you know that whole. Very familiar sequence in an, in a in a doctor's in a creepy doctor's office mm-hmm. that Chandler seems to love. He must hate going to the doctor, by the way. <laughs> I think you're right. Yeah, because yeah. he has like you know Hicks or <laughs> Hamilton is an optometrist, yeah. and then he has you know across from a funeral home you have a have a, a doctor working there, of course, and mm-hmm. the whole name drop of Elmore as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, yeah, I found that yeah. kind of interesting because yep. Chandler's still connecting his world together and, and saying, yeah, this is just another guy. Maybe he he replaced Elmore in the end or something like that, right? Or the other dope doctor that we went. We met in Bay City back in Farewell, My, my oh, yeah. Lovely. The guy working for Amthor, yeah. Amthor, yeah, exactly. Uh, no, you, you raise a good point. There's something there with the doctors. And just getting back to his death, Ligardi and Gonzalo's death, you know, we know because Dolores has that line about uh, the highways being littered with the corpses of uh, of ex-husbands or something of that nature. Like, it was probably an ugly breakup and she was off with Steelgrave. Maybe Steelgrave was the, the other man. He was the guy who, who got involved and, and he wanted revenge for that. You know, he wanted revenge yeah. for his wife going to, off with Steelgrave. So he went, Ligardi went and, and, you know, took care of it at the end there. But 
Uh, it's, yeah. it's it's interesting. It, it's hard to say. Like, who knows? Mm. Like, maybe Marlowe in the end is kind of is, is redeemed, kind of in the end, because maybe he doesn't know why Lagarde was there. He just didn't care anymore. Mm. And 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 you know, and he didn't have any evidence against Lagarde at the time. So there's nothing he could really do about it. So maybe he just thought Lagarde was just him and Dolores were going to celebrate their control of, I guess, organized crime in Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. Like maybe, and then of course, he, oh, he killed her, and then mm-hmm. himself. Okay, I get it. Or no, sorry, he didn't kill himself. He he. Uh, why did I think he killed himself for? Because he ran off, and the police were looking for him still. So he's on the he's on the lam as well. Who Lagarde? Yeah. No, Lagarde's dead. I thought he ran off. No, he didn't run off. He bit through his tongue. He's got all this sort of foam on his mouth. Well, he bit through his tongue, yeah, but I, I, I just thought, like, he was just, like, injured or something like that. No, 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 no. I mean, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll read the last bit here. When they cracked the door, he was sitting on the couch holding her pressed against his heart. His eyes were blind, and there was bloody foam on his lips. He had bitten through his tongue. Under her left breast and tight against the flame-colored shirt lay the silver handle of a knife I had seen before. The handle was in the shape of a naked woman. The eyes of Miss Dolores yes. Gonzalez were half open, and on her lips there was the dim ghost of a provocative smile. He glanced across at Dr. Lagarde, who saw nothing and heard nothing, if you could judge by his face. Okay. I presumed he was dead. Yeah, I, su- I suppose, but I guess he bit through his tongue. I guess he drowned or choked himself, I guess. That's I suppose what happened. I don't, I don't, that's it's, a hell of a way to go. I don't think that's really, how he died. It's really weird to describe because did he take cyanide with the foam in his mouth? Like, did he do cyanide or poison? Well, that, like, that's how I yeah. understood it. Yeah, okay. I, I just found that part, like, I wasn't quite sure what happened there. So, that, yeah. but that's good. Like, I, by that point, I was just like, oh, really? Okay. But it isn't clear, we're, Josh. We're doing this now. So I yes, was it like, isn't clear, and that's that's how I felt with the little with the um, lady in the lake, and I felt again here at the end of this, we didn't need this kind of shoehorned quick ending. Like it didn't explain anything. It didn't really resolve was, anything. Lady in the lake was different though, because the whole story connected to the whole um, the whole sleight of hand about the body in the lake mm-hmm. not being Mildred uh, Haviland. Yeah, so that to me, that story all connected in the end. This story just seems like, okay, and then we're doing this. Oh, by the way, and this, and oh, by the way, and this, and oh, by the way, mm-hmm. this. That's just kind of how I felt about it. Okay. Like, it was more about, like, uh, okay, I guess. And instead of, to me, like, <laughs> of course, of course. I was, this was, that's what I was looking for in this story. Of course, you know, but I wasn't well, getting Well, I was there. I was, I was getting the of course when Orphame and Oren's plan was revealed. Yes, that's I got why it I then. Gave the perpetrators yeah. three because mm-hmm. I like the idea that you know that the, the most colorful villains of the story, you know, besides you know Gonzalez, I guess you could say in her own colorful way, is Orin Quest, where we are told you know and shown the creepy and murderous things he's done, but we never grasp on him as he's killed by another player before he can make a real impact. Mm-hmm. And then we have uh, Orphame Quest and her own little side gig and this idea that the idea of you know of like this like. Secretary, this very secretarial person going back to her doctor's office, as as, as Marlowe describes, and you know, taking in the uh-huh. patients one by one, one by one, and people not realizing she's like this sociopath, you know, behind the scenes, right? Uh, it's uh, I thought that was kind of cool, and I think he could have played on that a lot later, a lot better, I should say, uh, by not having that denouement with uh, Gonzalez and Lagarde. Agreed. So we're both three for perpetrators. Um, Moving on to the environment of the story. Uh, For me personally, this was a weak point 
Uh, it was the weakest point of the story. We're not vacant or absent of descriptive variants or moments in the story, you know, but there is generally, I feel like, there's like a lack of polish and detail here that there is no real meditation or observation or time spent on space like we had with Farewell My Lovely or even like the Bunker Hill moments in The High Window. There's definitely nothing as grabbing as that in The Lady in the Lake either with Puma Point and Little Fawn Lake this mm. book this book just isn't a descriptive story we get a lot of a lot of hollywood it's not described to us objectively or even through marlowe's cynicism we just get it through comments you know like uh. we get it through comments and that's a bit of a loss really considering what what was available to him like he he does go into the hollywood mind but he it's does. shallow it's shallow and it's like it's it's bling it's architecture it's glitter and all of that is just lost none of that's on the page at all no, I agree we get with that. we get that we get that one moment where we're kind of looking over his shoulder as he's walking through the studio as he's going to meet on the set with Mavis, but that's it really. That's yeah, it. I, I like the I like the whole like description of going to Balu's uh, Balu's office is very good. Yes, that but does Baloo's stand office, out. I like the studio set mm-hmm. as well with the different actors on the set like Mavis nah, and then and, right. and them being catty to each other and then you have like that 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 big ego lead actor who was really kind of mediocre anyway yeah but that's uh, not environment like that's not that's not the no, setting but, that's but, not but, the but, decoration but to, me, it, but to me it's still a description of of you know as he's trying to paint a picture in his writing of you know of that world and i i think that helped okay. with environments right. to me but I, well, okay. I feel i feel what you're saying um it, it to me it's a lot there's a lack like clausen's dope apartment tower block in bay city and not maybe it's not tower block but it's you know it's his apartment house that that that's okay that, there's some yeah and, there's the some, and there is good and yeah the there's some room as well yeah like the, the van nuys hotel, hotel. yeah van nuys we, hotel how about still graves house for example what would you think of that eh, again not very much like we we get more about the roadblock leading up to it you know yeah the like roadblock and, and, and the hill and everything like that it's yeah, just a dark it's a darkened house with like some crystal tumblers and rock glasses around and all the lights are off so we don't get prop we get like a lot of moonlight description cracking through uh, the window i, I but... like the description of like the interrogation room and how in, in, at the police station and how they describe you know him sitting down and yeah then you have the sonographer coming in and yeah it, yeah that, that, that was good atmosphere in those senses but there's some I good feel, at in, yeah i feel that chandler was much more interested in getting into marlo's mindset yes and, i agree and the description yeah. of marlo's uh inner thoughts seemed more on the knows and get telling this story than doing his usual kind of tactile experience of the world around him mm-hmm. um I, I you know to tell the mystery aspect of it i guess you could say there are some there are some external descriptions like when you think about the scene where he or marlo's with oppenheimer and his dogs like yes and and we do like where Mavis lives in Crestview, we do get a sense of kind of the stairs going up from the road below and like all of that stuff where he meets Steelgrave. But if, you know, you talk about the Van Nuys Hotel and okay, yeah, I'll meet you there, but I'm, but I'm only going to meet you halfway because it's, it's Christie's comments, like what he says to Flack when Flack gets insulted about I think Christy says something about how it's like, you know, a shitty place. And then he's like, ah, oh, wait a minute. And he goes, oh, shut up. Like, let me do my job, but just don't, don't, don't lie to me. I could have like a strip show here with French finishing touches done in five minutes. You know, like, <laughs> that's the type of place this is. But those, the, those are the descriptors. We don't get them through observation or through mm. exposition. We get them through what characters say or do in told. the environments. Yeah. 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 And, and I get it, but yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I guess I've just felt a little bit disappointed because I know that Chandler can really deliver on these sorts of set piece descriptions. Compare that and to Lady in the Lake, right? Like the first half exactly, of Lady in the yeah, Lake. Which I love. Where, yeah. where the atmosphere is set so well. And then, mm -hmm. I mean, you think the second half is disappointing in that regard. I think in terms of, uh, this is why to me, Lady in the Lake is a stronger novel than, I'm saying that now, actually, uh -huh. and declaring uh -huh. that, than, than, uh, the, the, than the little sister, just on the basis of the kind of the lack of environmental description in this story. You know, I found the atmosphere was kind of all over the place, except, of course, when he's very clearly and almost in a way takes you out of the narrative almost a little bit of how he describing Hollywood. Because to me, when I was reading it, even though I haven't even really read on the background of Chandler at the time, I was like, okay, so I guess he, Chandler didn't have a fun time in Hollywood. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's inside his head. We don't yeah. get a lot of decorations. There's not a lot of set decoration to this. I think if the book had been 25, 30 pages longer with more of the stretch depth uh, description that we got, like the Bunker Hill stuff and the High Window, or the you know the Amthor stuff, because the way his eagle nest or his little eyrie was described, you know, sitting on top of the the cliffs, looking over the ocean. I think. Yes. And if you remember Marlowe going into that room you know where you you've got these sort of columns these black columns and there's marble everywhere and he sits in a little chair it's like a bond villain layer i would yes. have thought if like he had done like a ken adams set basically yeah i feel like the closest we got to that was baloo's office you know i think that was really it and yes. there weren't a lot of there didn't seem to be a lot of want on chandler's part to to play to one of his key strengths which i think is descriptive setting construction and the establishment of place you know he he really doesn't do that much here so i went two and a half for the environment here because yeah it did what it had to do i guess but he didn't try to push the rock up the hill at all i was three i liked his description okay. of hollywood and i think that stood out and i think i think that's what he really wanted to convey in the story right. and he sold that atmosphere to me about the world that um mavis weld you know was a part of what lila was a part of and i think that was effective but right. I feel that um, I would give much more higher marks if he had focused on the stuff that you did. Maybe right. I'm a little more generous in my my marking, but mm. um, I, I, I'm I'm it's happy okay. with I'm happy with three. I'm happy with okay. Three. Well, for the secondary characters, buddy, uh, the supporting cast. I enjoyed the supporting cast here more than I did in Lady in the Lake. Same I with gave me. It, I gave this a four overall, and the reason I gave it a four overall was because. For me, this was the right number of characters. You've got Deputy Lieutenant Christy French. You've got Bifus, um, the District Attorney Endicott, Sheridan Ballou and Spink, who are connected, Helen Grady, Alfred, Mr. Toad, and even that little actor, uh, Fortescue, is that his name? Those guys are all connected Fortescue, to... Fortescue, who I yeah. think was clearly either a parody on Chandler himself with his cane that he always had, right. or, the, or the Malacca cane, I was thinking of Billy Wilder as well, a little ah, bit. interesting. When I, when, yeah. when, I was, when I was reading that. But, uh, yeah. But then you get into Baloo's office, and he's got a cane too. Yeah, they all have canes, and they've all got with, canes. With, yeah, with a little cylindrical thing in there. It's like an affectation, right? And yeah. and Chandler mentioned one of the things that really annoyed him about Billy Wilder was how he kept pacing around with his cane and pointing in his face all the time, right? So <laughs> I think he basically almost, I guess, Wilder was his first real impression of a Hollywood big timer, uh -huh. and, I, and I think he maybe painted them all with the same brush, I guess you could say. In that, yeah, cool. Um, they well, all wave also... their canes everywhere at everybody. We got Jules Oppenheimer and yes. Clausen as well. And then, of course, you've got, um, although I guess he's kind of a perpetrator, but it's not really a perpetrator in this story. You've got Hicks or Hamilton or however Hicks you want. Hicks yeah, and Hamilton, yeah. yeah, absolutely. His, what's his real name? What's his real the dude's real name? Um, what is he? Oh, uh, Back in Cleveland, like it's, it's, it's a really, it's like something smile or something. It's quite a name. Weepy Moyer? 
No, the Weeping no, Warrior no, 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 is no, no, Steel Warrior was Steel Grave. Yeah, sorry. It was it was another similar kind of like Jewish gangster name too. I'm trying to remember it. Rem, trying to remember it. Because there was a lot of Jewish gangsters at the time. Because I mentioned Bugly Bugsy Siegel, and I mentioned Mickey Cohen, who was also part of that line. And then you also have Meyer Lansky of that period as well. Okay, that really reminded me, actually, when he was talking about the gangsters in this. I kept thinking of that conversation he has with Ian Fleming in '59 about you know mob hits yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. And that really caught you know caught my eye on you know like on how well Chandler knew that world. So mm-hmm. I thought that was really uh, I came back to that when I was reading it. Mile away, Marston. Marston, yeah. Mile away, Marston, yeah. Mile away, Marston, yeah. Anyway, I, I think the supporting cast in this story is as good as any other Marlowe adventure. Um, like I and said, even, for even my... the small characters stand out too, like Black yeah. and as I mentioned, even but like they the... don't clog up. They don't clog up the story. Sorry to interrupt no. you, buddy, but they don't clog no. up the story for me. Like Alfred and Mister Toad are involved in the roles that they have like that's it yes. you, you know that they're not actually important overall and they're fun and they're a little punchy and a little descriptive and that's it they go away and then we learn that they're part of blues mechanism the security that these hollywood stars are afforded i get it i like it that's yes. it done they in play, lady they in the lake roles. they yeah. play functionary roles in lady in the lake chandler wants me thinking everybody is important everybody is meaningful in some way and it's too much stuffing here with this story, I think he nails it with a comfortable number of red herrings that could intrigue a reader without really taking him or her out of the story by just padding it with like so many guys and girls you got to think about and worry about and care about and th- double think about. So I think he gets the balance right here. It's a little easier to play along with this story because the supporting cast lets you do that, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, you know what, dude? If it weren't for that ending, which really let me down, that sort of Gonzalez complication, if we can call it that, you know, I'm thinking of it like a, a Big Bang Theory title, episode title now, like the Gonzalez complication, right? Or yeah. whatever. If, <laughs> if there wasn't that at the end, I would think that I would probably be going much higher for this. But I went secondary story, secondary characters with a four. Yeah. Yeah, I went for the four as well. I agree with everything that you say about it. Cool. I also want to point out again that police stenographer. I liked how after you know the police had left the room and he was you know he knew he was free and he left yeah. because French yeah. walks out. Stenographer comes in and starts typing away and she's just like and he's like you know and she's just talking to him going are you okay young man or something like that right like <laughs> it was just sort of like uh, I just feel that Chandler populates his world with real people and that really to me helps tell the story even the, like, even the small characters you know they play well mm-hmm. and i agree with you they don't convolute the story like they do in other in some other novels that he's done yeah even just what you're saying about the uh, the, the police off uh, the police station scene he's being held in the room right and he's playing cards <laughs> with the night guy the night guard or oh, oh yeah that's right who that's cool. has breakfast yeah. with yeah I like he gets that kind of like that good cop before he gets the bad cop <laughs> that's right yeah yeah r- r- routine they're assaulting them up you know what i mean so h- how do you think detective lieutenant christy french measures up here in comparison to some of the other big police figures we've seen the sort of supporting cast police figures whether the bay city cops or guys like um Oh, who was his ally in the in the previous story? Really liked him. Um, the sheriff, uh, uh, not Patton. Uh, Patton. Yeah, sh- sheriff. Sheriff, sheriff Patton. Patton. Yeah. yeah. How do you think he uh, measures up to him? Or uh... I think I think he's about equal. I actually like Christy French. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, he was a product of the system, obviously, and he was kind of a very by the book, you know, like grab a collar kind of guy, and and that's it. Don't do anything else, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, he wasn't really interested, you know, in terms of true justice being served. You know, he he was aware of the angles that did exist, and he probably knew what Marlowe was up to. But at the same time, he also finds people like Marlowe frustrating because they make his job much more difficult. And yeah, for him of course. To put, well, know, he says that, doesn't he? he exactly. He and has that. He has his he, own little uh, monologue towards the end he, of the story. 
in front of everybody. Yeah, he just kind yeah. of just basically yeah. he publicly crucifies Mar- Mar- <laughs> he does. Uh, Marlo at the crime scene, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe that's the crucible that I was talking about. Yeah, yeah. But both <laughs> but, uh, district, both district attorneys are pretty sound figures. Like they're both, they both seem to be. Uh, interestingly, it's kind of like, it's kind of like the district attorneys. This is a bad analogy, but you know, you've got this kind of fizzing bottle of coke, right, or whatever, and okay. it's all this kind of Bay City rot going on. And even within the LAPD, there's a lot of rot going on. You got these sort of greasy guys like uh, like Hemingway from Farewell, My Lovely, and Maglashan yes. from Bay City, and then you got Christy French, who you know is a good guy, but he's really he's jaded as well. And and then yes. on top of it. You've got these district attorneys. We we've seen two or three of them now, and they all seem to be really sound. So they're they're kind of like they're kind of like the solid lids on top of the coke bottle that's keeping all that fizz at bay. And like when we get it's to true. that when we get to that part of every story, you realize that okay, so as corrupt as this is, the guys who are overlooking it seem pretty pretty okay. And what's that because say? They have the, because they have the power to have not like they have the power more so than the police than than the regular. Yeah, that's true. You know, guys yeah. like French do. They have the power to be that way. They can decide if they want to be corrupt. They yeah, can decide yeah. if they don't want to be corrupt. They can decide to let this person off or the other person mm-hmm, off. Mm-hmm. They have the ability to execute true justice, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to the other guys who just got to basically, you know, make their collars in order to get the good performance reviews on their jobs so they continue to get paid so that they can feed their families. Mm-hmm. Whereas with district attorneys who are on this political course, you know, they don't have to worry about things like that whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. So they can afford to, you know, see between the lines, I guess you could, you could say, and, and I guess filter out, you know, uh, everything else underneath the, underneath their position that mm-hmm. those people are, are unable to do because of their positions uh, and how they are and how like if they move from that position it could threaten their livelihood yeah. guys like French yeah. for example yeah it'll be neat you know when we when we finish these stories to go and kind of do a little ranking of secondary and supporting players good and bad I think it's going to be really neat because in every one of our discussions on the Chandler novels we always seem to get to this last a component of our pipes and through talking about it we realize just how colorful the world is that Chandler writes like he creates really good characters for Marlowe to bounce off whether it's in a small scene like Alfred and Mr. Toad or whether it's something bigger like Bifus and French you get really good characters or Oppenheimer yeah like he was get only there for a really brief second but and even though he was sort of like I think again this is 100% Chandler, you know, his own view of the studio system right then and there. Mm-hmm. This old kind of like eccentric studio producer who just feeds his dogs and makes whatever movies he wants to because he sure, can yeah. and doesn't really care about everything else below that. He was more concerned about his dogs pissing on his bench and more, <laughs> and more interested in, in that as opposed to, you know, everything else going on around him. He doesn't care as long as it gets done and they make, and they make the bottom line, right? He even says, you know, like, you can buy all, all you gotta do is buy all these movie theaters and sell the, and then sell your movies in them, right? Like, and that's, that's right. it. Yeah. Like there's no, he doesn't, it's care easy. About, it's he doesn't easy. care about artistic credibility or competition, you know, to foster that kind of artistic competition between the studios. He's more about controlling everything. And of course, apparently this guy is based off the person I believe who ran Paramount. And this is the guy who ran into the Paramount decree, wherein the studio system was, was basically made, was, was defunct, was, yeah. was defunct because by law, they were considered now a monopoly that was taking control of the entire industry. And I mean, if you look at today, you know, like the, the movie theater chains are dying out because, well, I think COVID played a big part in that, of course. But again, you have these big conglomerates, you know, like Disney, for example, and AT&T, they're the ones that are owning everything nowadays, right? So media is going to be going to be completely controlled by one source in the end. And we're, are, we're, are we getting close to another Paramount decree I think coming so. down? Yeah, I think so. 
we'll see. I guess about the next couple of months we'll, we'll determine yeah, that. Yeah, for sure. Interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I like the secondary characters here. They're good. I went for a four, and I wonder how many of these are going to find their way on a short list of my favorites. I don't know that there will be, but for this story, they work. I do like Sheridan Baloo. I think Baloo could, could maybe find his way into a long list of my favorites from the Marlowe worlds. And uh, Alfred and Toad are pretty cool henchmen, even though they, you know, nervous, nervous guys. Yeah, Baloo really stuck out to me, you know, like I was, he, was, he seems like a character that you would encounter in like in a 1940s version of Entourage, I guess you could say. Like he he just really kind of stuck out that way. Hmm. Um, I, I was thinking, you know, like if he ever came to bad luck or whatever, and I think he could be kind of like the, some kind of fun information source for Marlowe down the road, you know what yeah, I mean? Good, like, yeah. To go and visit, give him insight on Hollywood or something. Like, for example, if he became compromised somehow and he had to serve some time and then he became, you know, uh, back on the scene, but as sort of like an informant for Marlowe. I think that could have been a fun dynamic, I guess. But I'm just thinking, you know, spinoffs, I suppose. <laughs> but but I know I, I enjoyed his character and just for the brief moments that he's in. And I guess and again, I established that Chandler is really good at doing that. All right. All right. So you were a four as well in that category. I was. All right. So let me do the math here. Four, five, three, five is eight, three. Right, so I'm 17.5 out of 25 for this story, and you were 18.5. You were a point ahead of me there. Oh, okay. Well, not too bad. So we had, I, we actually came to a similar agreement with this story. I still think I prefer Lady in the Lake a little mm-hmm. bit more. I found it better structured, and I, I, I don't know, like I just found the twist was set up a lot better. Um, but I, but I think overall, like in this particular story, we were on the same page. Um, yeah, I think you I think liked, so. I think you're, you're, you liked, you know, with, with the exception of the Gonzalez problem or whatever mm-hmm. you're going to call the episode. I like, um, I like the story a little bit more, but like, dude, I was, I was with you. I'm with you a hundred percent for the first half of Lady in the I Lake. Know. I know. You know. I know. It's my, probably my favorite bits of Marlowe up until that point, but uh, <laughs> I like this. I like this story. I thought it was neat to be in Hollywood. It was nice to be doing something that was well-informed as well. It wasn't just out of the imagination. It was very well-informed and it wasn't, um, yeah, yeah, it's like a bit of a piece of history in a way, and you're seeing it come to life in the writing of, of Chandler mm-hmm. in here. So again, we'll go back to you know what you know if you want to get into Marlowe and in particular Chandler's writing. Uh, despite you know what we think about the the denouement of this story, I feel that the little sister is definitely one worth picking up. Yeah, uh, for sure. I don't know. I would recommend maybe reading a couple, of, at least one or two of the other novels to to get into this. I think if you would really want to get the impact of this story, seeing where Marlowe has come so mm-hmm. far, yeah, I think you want to probably it's helpful. It's helpful to pick up the other novels beforehand. So let me ask you then, Josh, in closing here, um, how much of Marlowe's cynicism towards Hollywood at the end of the day, you know, the context considered, the story considered, Chandler's life considered, how much of Marlowe's cynicism towards Hollywood and the studio system is Chandler's? I mean, is he a, a, a part for part mouthpiece or is there some creative license going into this here? I would say it's half and half. Half and half? Yeah, I would say that there's Chandler's voice for sure. But then you also have, you know, the character that he created, which, you know, a lot of authors, when they create their characters, obviously they're going to be extensions of themselves in their own way. Sure, yeah. But I think in a way that as, you know, a character grows organically as you write them. Mm-hmm. And I think in some ways um, Chandler puts in aspects of other people that he's met before or that he or, or that he wants to be into those characters. And they kind of grow into their own, I guess, organisms. They take on a life of their own is what I'm trying to say. And I catch you. I get you. But yeah. I, I asked the question simply because we've both said that th- this is a character piece. This book is more, it works best as a character piece. And Marlowe is more aggressive. He is more present 
it's psychologically here on the page than we've seen maybe before. It is. Um, and it's, it's more cutting. He's, he, and so I'm just asking the question because we know that this book is set in a place where Chandler has recently done a lot of work. And I'm wondering if that character change, that evolution, is because of that mouthpiecing. Oh, yeah, I would say I think his experience as a writer, I think his experiences would would de would definitely, you know, um, you know, would de would definitely drip into his work as well. And think of, of the high window and comparing it to Little Sister. One thing to consider as well is that, you know, that story ended with Marlowe as the heroic knight or whatever, bringing that girl from the country back home. And here we are that that girl from back home, you know, that Marlowe would save, you know, that Marlowe rescued by the end of the, the high window. Mm -hmm. That person is now the villain, if you think about it. like That's right. Yeah. And Kansas, yeah. Kansas in both cases. It is Kansas in both cases. Yeah, exactly. So Marlo, there's almost like, yeah. yeah Chandler's exactly. got some sort of a hate on for Kansas. Yeah, maybe. Or what is it? The birthplace and the hell of all good people. Something like that. The birthplace in hell, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. Well, does it though? I don't know. <laughs> I just think it shows the dichotomy, anyways, of, of yeah. how, like, in, in a place like that where good and bad can come from. Because mm -hmm. think of someplace pure and stuff. You know, you have sort of like this idea of this idyllic kind of American small town Eden, and then all of a sudden, you know, all those values then are trust Corrupt, upon, you yeah, know, an, yeah. an, an individual, and then that individual is he going to accept those values and become a good person, and mm -hmm. and then go to go to Hollywood and be corrupted. Or is that person going to reject those values where they are and already become corrupted and then make their way that way or wherever they end up going, right? Yeah. So it just goes to show you that even though you come from a small town, it doesn't necessarily mean that because uh, the thing about Orphan Made Quest is that she doesn't go to Los Angeles and become corrupted. She was already corrupted from the very That's beginning. That's right. Yeah, she was. Yeah. Exactly. So mm -hmm. what I'm trying to say is, is that it's not necessarily where you come from that corrupts you. It's who you are as a person. And that's what Chandler's trying to get at, you think? I think so. At least in part. In part. But, you know, that, that will be a discussion for a later time as well when we finish these. And we, maybe we can explore that contrast between big and small, rural and urban, when we have, you know, the, the focus of all of the stories before us. Indeed. All right. Well, thanks, buddy, for joining me on this journey, as you always My do. My pleasure. You're uh, married into it with me now, I'm afraid. Um, <laughs> and thank you very much for listening to this episode of Light in the Pipes. We hope you've yes. enjoyed our little adventure through The Little Sister. And we will be back very soon. Well, it's a bigger book. We probably won't be back immediately, but we will be back soon with our look at the long goodbye. Yes, uh, look forward to diving into that. and uh, Maybe uh, maybe a little film review there too of the Robert Altman film, huh? Yeah, possibly we could probably throw that in. That's, that, that's a fun. good shout for sure. And um, we'll also be exploring more of Chandler's adventures in Hollywood. Yeah. And I guess take him up to the writing of a long goodbye, I guess, towards the last decade of his life, actually. So mm -hmm. we're coming close to the end. We are indeed, sir. And uh, this has been fun. So uh, just to echo your point from the beginning, uh, we hope everybody's doing really well out there, staying safe and taking care of yourselves. And we'll see you back here very soon indeed. Yeah, absolutely. And before I go, um, don't mm -hmm. forget... Please go to our Instagram page on Lighting the Pipes and tell us what you think about, you know, who would be a good uh, detective figure that we could examine next if we decide to go in that direction, of course. Mm -hmm. But we'd be happy for your opinions. And let, uh, us, there... let us know also. Yeah, let us know. This is, this is one look at a little sister. Who are the other great little sisters of literature? I'm not sure Orphan May Quest, you know, earns the right to be a little sister. And is she the little sister or is it Layla? Which one's the little sister? Ah, that's a good point. Who is the mm. little sister? Yeah, that's definitely quite true. true. But let us know who the other, who are the other great little sisters. Joe March, she's the oldest sister, isn't she? 
I think she is. Yeah, I haven't I haven't read Little Women, so I just know that oh, name. Dude, you got to read that book. It's great. All right. Yeah, that's a good book. Re- recommendation there then. Mm-hmm. Um, from King Lear, poor Goneril. Poor Goneril, nothing. She was the villain of the story, man. Oh, shoot. I was thinking of Cordelia. Never mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Cordelia. Yeah. Cor- Cordelia, the truth sayer. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Give us an email at lightingpipes at gmail.com. And as Josh says, get yourself over to our Instagram page and let us know what you thought of this episode or indeed uh, where we should go next with our investigations. And uh, yeah, we'll see you. We'll see you back on the show soon. Thanks again for listening. Cheers and uh, happy new year and goodbye 2020. Yeah, goodbye 2020. Can't go quick enough.